My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again with your, Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? What does a zombie apocalypse really look like? Frenzied cannibals marauding their neighbors mindlessly obeying a parasitic destructive hunger? Or could it be a large swath of the nearly 8 billion people on the planet awakening from a controlled and entrained slumber that has allowed us to spend centuries haphazardly abusing the earth, each other, and ourselves with our hordes of economic hitmen keepers of a prison whose guards don't even realize they're more enslaved than their prisoners. Remember, they may have imprisoned our bodies, but they can never imprison our minds and certainly not our souls. And here, returning for a third time, is the Secret Sun Institute's creator, author, artist, musician, and researcher, Christopher Knowles, back on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to share his struggles and subsequent triumph over darkness and addiction by reconnecting with nature and channeling those energies through his mighty pen and synchromystic sword. He also shared his insights on the Babylonian death cult obsessed with sirens and rock stars. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Christopher Knowles. Because she is the Sybil, and Sybils, Sybils are oracles, right? But they don't work the way, like, they don't just sit there and go, oh, you will die, <laughs> you know, you will die when you run to the field of battle, oh, Caesar. You know, they, they would, first of all, they sang, they sang their prophecies, and they sang in, like, confusing language or even nonsense, which she also does, and they would also go out on tour and sing their songs in different cities and so on like she does so i it's we're waking up from a dream we're waking up from the dream of modernity okay we're waking up from the dream of technological salvation we are waking up from the dream of the industrial revolution we are waking up from the dream of the enlightenment 
We're waking up from the dream that things stopped working like they worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, where, for instance, generals and, and kings and priests would all go consult with sibyls for their major decisions. You know, we, we thought in the wake of the Enlightenment that that was all nonsense and that stuff doesn't really exist, but it's like, yeah, it does, and we're waking up from the dream. We're waking, you know, as a collective, we are waking up from the dream that, you know, people like Darwin had, you know what I'm saying? That, that there was this mechanistic kind of world that, you know, the world was just a machine and we're just biological robots and so on. And interestingly enough, like I said, Jeffrey Epstein was the driving, in many ways, was the driving force behind this because he was funding all the people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and... Daniel Dennett and all these kind of people. He was funding a lot of the people who, you know, it was it was almost like the last gasp for the scientific mindset, you know, for, for the enlightenment thinking. And oddly enough, he was the driving force behind it. Okay. And um, and now we're we're realizing. I mean, I think the more enlightened among us realize that no, despite all these wonderful machines that we have, and despite refrigeration and air conditioning and, and motor cars and that um, nature is as it has always been. We have not been able to change nature, you know, because nature doesn't really even notice us for the most part. You know, there's very little we can do to change nature. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. I am honored to have a three-time returning guest now. Someone who's inspired me immensely from hearing his numerous interviews in many different places. He's joined Sam Tripoli, my boss, on Tinfoil Hat several times. And he's been kind enough to join us all the way back on episode 14, episode 133. And now, whatever number this ends up being. Chris, how are you? Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. And I must say, I've been a I've been a student of the Secret Sun Institute for almost a year now, feels like uh, since awesome. your last appearance. And I've learned a lot. It's cool to be a part of that community. A lot of really bright minds in, in the Patreon chats there, leaving comments and stuff. And I see you have some live streams where people can participate. I have not taking you up on that opportunity yet, but I plan on it. So anyone listening, please go check out Chris Knowles' Secret Sun Institute Patreon. Join me there. But you've been covering a lot. I really particularly want to highlight your, you know, because people expect a certain energy from your research, I guess. And mm -hmm. what I've found really most compelling is the wisdom that you have to share your message to the mystic series where you just kind of talk about your life and what's going on in your head and, and society. And, and it's, it feels very, it feels like we're getting a really close insight into your mind, which is true for a lot of your research, you know, but in particular, it's been very meaningful for me learning from, from you in that way. So just an endorsement there oh, I, for, I for the secret son. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's being old and learning the hard way, I guess, you know, uh, I've been around the sun a few times. So I, I, uh, you know, it's kind of hard fought wisdom. I've just spent a lot of time thinking about things and 
trying to work things out. And every time I see something that puzzles me, like my brain always just starts worrying and I'm always trying to figure out like, what is this? How does it work? And then that just kind of applies to everything else. I'm always just really concerned with solving problems and solving puzzles and, and dealing with the, um, you know, the shit that we all have to deal with every day more and more. So certainly, and I've been reading, um, you know, I've been interested in the Stoics lately, people like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. And, uh, I kind of see that as like Western Zen, you know, it's very practical and it's, um, it's very down to earth and, you know, it's been really highly influential to me. I, I, you know, these guys 2000 years ago, we're dealing with the same kind of problems that we are, you know, dealing with, with the same issues that we have to deal with. And how did they, you know, apply the wisdom that they learned from their teachers to these issues? Cause they all, you know, they didn't just pop out of the sky with this stuff. They, they were students of philosophers and, it was a time when, you know, this was a, a real world concern. This was a real world issue. It wasn't just like, you know, philosophy got very abstract, particularly in like the 17th and 18th centuries, you know, people like Immanuel Kant and everything. And it got very hard to apply to your own life. So, like I said, I've been really interested in this, the uh, Stoics, but it, it's funny because I was interested in the Stoics like 20-something years ago. I remember reading the um, Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, and it really had a profound influence on me. Because, like I said, I mean, it's, it's very practical, it's very down-to-earth, and it's not a question of, um, you know, trying to outsmart people or, or to sound more sophisticated than they are. It's just like, here's the problems that we have to deal with. How do we deal with them? And the same problems that we're dealing with today, in many ways, they were dealing with 2000 years ago. So with the message of the mystics, it's just like, I spent a lot of time just walking around or if I'm working in the yard, it's like my best thinking is done. Like when I'm cutting the grass, it's like, that's like my motto. It's like when I'm out there, like working on the yard or whatever, it's like, that's when I do my best thinking. It's, it's, it's really strange. I think. I don't think that's very usual for most people, but well, like I'm out there like cutting grass or cutting wood or I don't know, moving big rocks around. It really gets my brain working. And that's when I do my best thinking. And and I think a lot about these things, like think a lot about the things that, you know, people like Seneca wrote and, um, you know, it's very practicable. Well, and I, and I think that, Go ahead. I just want to interject quickly, and I'd say I'd argue that our so-called intellectuals would probably seem more grounded if they took time to do that instead of just paying someone else to do it. You know, I agree. I have some of my best insights while I'm doing stuff like that as well. Well, that's like, you know, it used to be at like Buddhist, it probably still is at like Buddhist monasteries and monasteries where like you spend a lot of time like, what is it, chopping wood and carrying water. You know, I think that was the, the Zen thing, right? It's been so long since I read up on Zen, but it's it's really about, like, the real world and living in the real world, living in the physical world, living in the world of forces and not being so, you know, just lost in space, so ungrounded, so disattached 
from normal reality. I think what happens with a lot of people is that when you get into things like, I don't know, synchromysticism, philosophy, whatever, it's very easy to separate yourself. It's very easy to pull away from the concerns that people have because you're just so in that zone. You know, you're so in the zone of ideas and symbols and forms and all that kind of thing. So uh, there you go. Can you hear my cat meowing down there? Just slightly, but we don't mind. Slightly? Cats yeah. are always welcome. Uh, yeah, she's uh, driving me nuts. But no, so, you know, that's really what the message of the mystics is for. Because I do a lot of stuff, you know, where I'm doing a lot of symbology. I'm doing a lot of history. I'm doing a lot of synchro stuff. Uh, I'm doing a lot of um, star work, star lore, and so on. And I don't want to just be, you know, out there. I want to make sure that the work that I'm doing is grounded in, in everyday reality because I really honestly think that the kind of work I do with, like, sinks and stuff and symbolism and, and all this other stuff ultimately does have applications to our daily lives, you know, so we, we need to sort of harmonize that, you know, harmonize the abstract and the real, basically. Mm. No, I agree. And it's it's somewhat of an obsession of mine, the synchromysticism. And it's only because of shows like the the several that you've been on interviewing and and going into depth uh, some of the topics I hope we could touch on today. But, you know, it's something I've asked you about the past two times because synchromysticism has been something that I didn't understand or appreciate until it started happening to me. And I'm not over here pretending like I have some kind of great insight or I've cracked yeah. a case. I mean, I'm resting on the shoulders of giants like yourself when it comes to a lot of this stuff, but it's, it's, it pulls you in. It really does. And, and what I've come to think of it is like not enough people have their attention in the right place because we've been manipulated to such an extent. And in this almost spiritual way, the collective consciousness points out or pulls at the right person to to put the puzzle pieces together in a way that other people can start to see it. But it takes that first person. And, you know, to the point of the title of this show, that person usually seems crazy to most of their peers because they're the only one who sees it. They're the only one who has this experience of revelation of truth in that moment, but it's only a matter of time before, you know, that truth becomes a reality for everybody. You know, many of the, our greatest inspirations, whether it's Beethoven or, or literary inspirations weren't even recognized until they're after their death as, as the great, you know, artists that they were, but Van Gogh is a great example of that. Right. Right. So, Van Gogh. And I, well, and I don't think that's the case for you, sir, because you've had, you know, plenty of books published and you have your own Patreon now. So there's a, a nice record of people seeing your work and it gelling with them. I think now more than ever in this Internet age with the surplus of information, it's almost mm. like about time that some of these connections get made, because for the longest time, there was no medium to facilitate the connections. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of the work that I try to do is that we're constantly being gaslighted. You know what I mean? We're constantly being bombarded with these nonsensical narratives that in many ways are malicious. You know, they're, they're engineered to be malicious. They're engineered to hurt us. They're engineered to just to confuse us. 
and to demoralize us. And what I try to do, you know, and I, I consider it spellbreaking because, I, you know, gaslighting is a word, right? But I consider it, that's a form of sorcery. And because of things like Harry Potter, we've all come to these misconceptions about what sorcery is and how it works. But if you go back and read the history of it, you'll understand that it, it's, it, you know, obviously it doesn't work like you know harry potter or lord of the rings or something it's it works on a much different time scale for one thing but i think the gaslighting is sorcerous and the fact that there's there's so much ritualism at work you know that they're constantly you know they being all these different cults what i call the sorcerarchy um where they're performing rituals and kind of sucking us in sucking us up into them, like, you know, drafting us into their ritual work. And I think this has a lot to do with why so many people are just kind of like starting to flip out or just break down. You know, uh, you know, demoralization has interesting effects on different people. And some people just, they just, they just stop. They just melt down. And we're seeing a lot of that, you know, we're seeing a lot of it with like the great resignation and so on. And then there's also the idea of like people just freaking out, you know, people just becoming violent, aggressive, um, mutilating themselves, like this whole self-mutilation cult that's at work. And the work I'm doing right now coming up, and it will probably be up by the time this airs, but I've been doing a lot of work on the siren motif, you know, the siren theme that has been kind of my jam, like, sort of like my ballywick, sort of my turf for the past five years. And, um, you know, realizing that so much of what's going on now that we think is new is not new. Mm. And it, it's tied up into a lot of these goddesses, goddess cults from the ancient world that were very much concerned with, like, you know, gender and non-binary, you know, all the kind of things that we hear on a constant basis. And what, what it, the breakthrough that I kind of had this week is that I've always sort of seen this gender stuff as a cult, but now I start to see it more specifically and I start to see like where it comes from and how it works and where it's going. So that's another tool that I have now to incorporate into the work, you know, and it's interesting because whenever I bring this stuff up, people always sort of misinterpret it and they always accuse me of being transphobic and all this kind of stuff. And the interesting thing about that is that it just goes to show you that this is a cult and they see these people as like a priesthood. And that's something that in order to counter that, you need to be able to understand the, not only the historical precedent to it, but the psychological motivation behind it. So uh, psychology plays a huge role in the work that I, that I do, you know, because I was really interested in like Freud and Jung for a long time. So I sort of adapt that. I'm able to use that. And, and it's just basically, you know, a number of tools, like understanding sim symbolism as a tool, understanding uh, ritual magic as a tool, understanding, um, you know, religious ceremony as a tool understanding the mindset behind a lot of this cultism as a tool. So, we're in a we're in a fight, you know. We are really in a fight. Um, 
these people see themselves as what's called the successor ideology. I mean, they see that, that this is like the new paradigm that is going to replace whatever the old paradigm was. I mean, I think it's insane, and I think it's going to just melt down. And when it does melt down, I don't want it to take the rest of society with it. I don't want it to take us with it, you know? But since there's so much money and so much power behind all this stuff, all these various cults and so on, we need to understand it as much as we can and sort of go in with a scalpel. You know, we need we need to be very surgical about this. And I think a lot of people who do or try to do synchromysticism, it's, it's very much like, you know, they're trying to um, remove a brain tumor with a shotgun. You know, you can't do that. You need to you need to be precise because what happens is when you go in or, you know, people start screaming about Satanism and everything, Luciferianism and all these kind of things. It's like you don't understand that when you start using those words, people just shut down. You know, most normies, they just they're like, oh, God, I've heard this my my entire life. And they just stop listening. And I think, you know, people feel good and they they feel like this re- emotional release by sort of all this name calling. But they've just lost and lost and lost and lost and lost. So, you know, somebody like Alex Jones, who was riding this wave for a long time. I mean, you know, that. that He's just he just continues to lose. And I think that if we don't change tactics with dealing with the gaslighting, with dealing with the sorcerarchy, we're gonna lose everything too. You know, all of us are gonna lose everything. So it isn't just philosophic and it isn't just intellectual. It it really is. To me, it's a question of like what kind of civilization are we gonna want to live in? Because the civilization that the successor ideology is trying to build on top of ours has a proven record of catastrophic failure throughout history. So Right. Well, and when you were saying earlier, you're saying how, you know, the the wisdom of the Stoics is still valuable today. My point that Mm -hmm. came to my mind is like, well, yeah, the, the, the goddess and the gods of Sumeria are still being used by the elite. This template has been in place since that time period. Yeah, and it's it, that's a tall order to get normies to, to believe that. It took me a long time to wrap my own head around it. Um, you, you've got to know, you've got to know the rituals, you've got to know the names, you've got to know the history. You've got to know the, the mythologies. You, you have to really understand a lot before you can start to see it in the world around you. And, you know, it's interesting because somebody has sent me a link um, that somebody on Twitter was talking about, uh, you know, the whole cultist aspect of it and how it's just like, you know, these ancient cults, or whatever. I, I don't remember the specifics of it. But the one thing that I remembered thinking is that this person had said, well, you know, it's like this, but it's unconscious. And I was thinking, hold on a second. You're assuming what a lot of people don't understand is that the names of the gods in the ancient world were actually titles. Okay? They're not names as we understand them. They were titles that more often than not described their role. Okay? Described their function. 
So if you can understand that, if you can understand that these gods' names, you know, Baal is Lord, right? Moloch is king, right? Isis is throne, right? Set is pillar, you know? Uh, Osiris or Ausser or Weser is, is strength of the eye. So if you understand that these names are actually descriptions, they're job descriptions more than, again, what we think of as, you know, Christian names or surnames, then you can you can go back and reverse engineer it. So when you see these people holding, you know, holding these concepts as religious dogma, the way we see today, you know, particularly with like the whole woke end of the street, you can pull that apart more effectively. And again, I mean, it's something that I've really been very frustrated with for a long time. It was like, you know, it's like, oh, that's like Luciferianism or something. It's just like, hold on a sec. Show me the Luciferian texts that they're working from. Show me the scripture that they're working from. You know, show me the history here. Show me the um, the buildings that, that these Luciferians worshipped in and, and what the symbolism is in here. You know, it's like... When you, when you talk about Luciferianism, what, you real, what these people don't understand what they're really referring to is the Mithras cult. And I've talked about the Mithras cult. I've probably talked about it on here. And you can see Mithras symbolism literally everywhere. For instance, the cap of Mithras is on the, the official seal of the United States Senate. So when I say, yeah, this Mithras cult never went away and it's still embedded in the power structure and people say, oh, you're crazy. Well, I know what the symbolism is. I know what it means. And I can say, well, what, what about this? You know, there's the cap of, of Mithras on the United States Senate official seal. Are you you're telling me that that was just put there by accident? You know what I mean? You're telling me that that is, is, wasn't deliberate, that these people didn't understand what they're doing? You know, that's the real Luciferianism, is the Mithras cult, right? Because then you realize that Mithras is a god of light. And you also understand that things like just the idea of Luciferianism, right? Which people just throw around all the time. They don't even know what it means, right? They don't even know that it does mean anything. They don't realize a lot of these terms are kind of fed into the culture as diversions, you know? So if people start talking about Luciferianism, the the Mithraic cults, which are the real Luciferians, right? Can do whatever they want in broad daylight because people don't even see it. Because they've been conditioned not to see it. So that's, again, that's a large part of my work. Um, and the siren thing. So, I've, you know, one thing that I've always pointed out with the siren thing is that um, it's probably at this point in time one of the top five most ubiquitous symbols in the world because it's on every Starbucks and there's a Starbucks in every town. You know what I mean? There are Starbucks products in every grocery store. In America, there's Starbucks products in every convenience store and gas station. So everywhere you go, you are seeing the icon of the siren cult everywhere. And that's magic. You know, that's entrainment. And that's the other thing I, you know, that I really came to understand by doing this work is the, the concept of entrainment. You know, that people think, oh, well, you know, they put the symbolism out there and they're expecting like some immediate result it's like no they're not you know when you put the symbolism out there it's part of entrainment it's a process 
the people who, are, who really have power understand how power is accumulated. And power is accumulated through constant, deliberate, incessant, relentless effort. It's not by like the one punch, you know, and this is the problem that I always had with like the, a lot of the Q people. You know, it's like, oh, well, the, the, the White Hats and Trump are just going to come in there and, and just knock everybody out and that'll be the end of it. And it's just like, that's not, that's not how it works. It's never, it's never been how it works. Right. You know what I mean? It's never, it's not how power works. That's not how these systems work. You know, you have to start to understand systems of power. And I think that most people in the conspiracy world just have no understanding of that. And a lot of people in the conspiracy world, like, have never worked in media or they've never worked in advertising. Uh, you know, they've never worked in really what are in train entrainment industries. You know what I mean? Like literal entrainment industries. And if they haven't worked in those industries, how can they understand how this process works? You know, and a lot of this comic book superhero kind of nonsense that I see in conspiracy thinking, it just loses and loses every single time. You know, I don't know if, you know, if it's Alex Jones or Q or whomever, Pizzagate, they always, 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 always lose. They always lose because they don't understand, you know, they see the symbolism. They understand, you know, it's like you, they have a grasp of the symbolism more often than not because it's explained to them. But they don't understand what it's there for. They don't understand what the purpose of it is. They don't understand the whole concept of entrainment. So they think they can just knock it out and then like everything will be okay. And that's the whole thing with the white hats and TikTok and all this kind of nonsense that we heard with the Q stuff. And, you know, a lot of good people were sucked into this. You know, I'm not, I, I, I don't badmouth Q people because I think that they were being manipulated by a, what a, a classic pacification program. And, but the problem is, is they, they need to have a more sophisticated understanding of how power works, and they just don't. You know, it's like so much of their understanding of the, the mechanics of power comes from Hollywood, or worse, like Saturday morning cartoons, you know? Right, right. So I've noticed this, where someone like yourself does very seminal work, it inspires many people, and there's like this trickle-down, to borrow Reagan's favorite phrase, uh, this trickle-down of information where it, as soon as it hits that second level of understanding, that like first, you know, step in the game of telephone, you're already losing 50%, right? And then by the time it gets to the fourth, fifth, sixth person down the line, they feel like they've hit some big inspiration with only 6% of the information. And then they go out and they make a whole, you know, flurry about this. And it just creates this field of noise. That's very hard for maybe a newcomer who's seeing some things going on and wants to get informed. It's very hard for them to parse through without that, you know, experience of, of seeing slipshod conspiracy theories you know not pan out you know when you get into it and you're like oh yeah and this is going to happen it's very easy to feel like oh okay the apocalypse is coming here we go it's it's eight months away you know it takes a little bit of time to to sit through those waves and be like okay yeah they always say and i've heard you say this before you know darpa they've been 
you know, tickling our, our fear with this you know, promise of killer robots for decades, and they've never really come through with it. But you, you mentioned this. And they never will. Well, they never will. And we, we have discussed that before, but something we haven't discussed is the, the siren case. And if you could give people a quick 101, I mean, Elizabeth Frazier, uh, Jeff <laughs> Buckley, there are so many names, and you've talked uh, about this at length so many times. So I don't want to make you like go stress the details, but, uh, but Elizabeth Frazier, the lead singer of this uh, group called the Cocktail Twins, clearly traumatized, clearly has some MK Ultra influences. And, and although not being a very mainstream artist herself, has influenced many mainstream artists who are uh, very influential. So it is an important thing. You know, I've heard you talk about like, oh, why should people care? You know, but it is important because it seems like they are using key figures in pop culture to continue this entrainment and fix our attention, adding energy into their agenda, their spellcraft, right? So, so where where is the siren research taking you uh, thus far? Because I kind of gave a little one hundred and one, and I think people could people could go back and listen to your older work to get you know filled in. Well, you have to understand that I'm, I've been working on this week today, working on the deepest dive, the siren deepest dive. So it's like I'm so not in that like Reader's Digest elevator right. pitch zone right now. I'm so, so this like, is for so like, people who are our black belts in the siren research right now. We're about to get into it because yeah, I'm, I'm I, with this, you. I know yeah, what I, you've you've researched, but I don't know if that all the listeners are quite as hip as I am. But we could we could let those people, you know, figure it out. They missed out on this for now, but they, they got some catching up to do. So where where have you gotten in this deep dive? Uh, <laughs> as deep as you can get. Um, so the siren itself is part of this lineage of goddesses dating back to the ancient world. I mean, dating back to Sumer, really, because it all kind of starts with Tiamat, right? And then there are a number of these figures that are associated with the oceans um, and, you know, things like witchcraft and, and so on. Um, the, the figure that I'm interested in now, and is particularly germane to what's happening literally today, this week, this month, this year, in the culture, is a figure called Atagardis, or Atagatis, Atagatis, uh, a.k.a. Dercito, or Dercito, um, basically the first mermaid. And this, there was a, a lineage of goddesses going back to Sumer, um, Figures like Inanna and Ishtar. And then, you know, this basically the same figure kind of spreads out throughout the, the civilized world and takes on a number of different incarnations. Um, Asherah, Astarte, uh, Kadesh, Hathor, Aphrodite, Venus, and so on. Um, but basically what it kind of boils down to is that it's a figure of like liminality. It's a figure of fluidity, you know, literal fluidity. So when you start to hear like all this talk about gender fluidity, now people have a certain definition of that. But I'm at the point right now where I think, okay, well, this has been fed, this whole concept of gender fluidity has been fed into the culture by the siren cults. Okay. And 
Yeah, I, I understand for most people listening that they don't even think that there is a siren cult. Okay, they don't they don't see this, but at the same time, that icon, that talisman, that amulet of of the of the siren is everywhere they go. You know, so you've got to start to put two and two together. You know, I mean. It's a very deep story, like the stuff with Elizabeth and with Jeff Buckley and so on. That to me is almost incidental. That's sort of like, you know, that's like the hit single that gets you to buy the album. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? You understand that right. kind of. This was the I mean, road sign that, that anymore. <laughs> it was the road sign that caused you to turn left down this path, huh? Well, basically, you know, and and it's a good hook because it's it's a very. It's a it's a simple kind of story that people can kind of tune into, but like I said, it's part of a much deeper phenomenon. And so when I talk about like the sorcerarchy, you know, you have to understand that I have a supernatural worldview. Okay, I I do I'm not, you know, just somebody who talks about I don't know MK Ultra or something, you know in the conspiratorial realm. Like to me, the conspiracy is supernatural. And I know that I lose a lot of people when I start talking about this stuff, that I start talking about these forces, that these, what we call these gods are, are real, you know? They're not real maybe in the sense that we would think they were real by reading mythologies or whatever. But these are real forces that people wrote these mythologies and came up with these names and built these statues and so on so they could interface. That was how they understood that. That's how they understood how to interface with this power, these powers of nature. You know, when I start to talk about things like demons, demons to me are like spiritual energies of death. You know, they're, they're constellations of energy. They're forces of energy that... that are part of the, the Thanatos impulse. They're part of the death impulse, you know? But it isn't just like some conceptual idea. I mean, these, these are actual entities. I, I believe this, and, and I, they, they possess people. And again, when I start talking about this stuff, people are like, oh, what the fuck are you talking about? Are you insane? But um, it's, it's very, you know, it's something that I, struggled against for a long time it's something that i resisted for a long time but it's just you, you just get worn down and a lot of you know a lot of like diving into the siren mythology and the you know the, the siren series that i started in 2000 well actually i started in 2008 started up again in 2014 and then again in 2017 so it's like it's a very clear manifestation of this process at work but again, this whole idea of fluidity, gender fluidity and stuff, the, the siren cult, and let's just call it the siren cult, like I said, there are a number of different names for a number of different goddesses. And that the siren, you know, the, the first mermaid, the Ur mermaid, um, Atagardus, or Atagadus, I don't know, whatever it's pronounced, uh, it's not important. Um, you know, her priests were um, cross-dressers and eunuchs. And they're also kind of like... Um, like glam rockers too they were basically you know uh cross-dressers and eunuchs trans vestites i mean whatever terminology you want to use who were also mendicants which mean they would travel around and and perform this crazy 
basically ancient version of heavy metal and they would like headbang and stuff like they literally would because they had these long braided hairstyles and they would swing them around and everything you know like headbangers and um they would have these these uh giant processions where they would um mutilate themselves and encourage young men to to mutilate themselves like sexually mutilate themselves and join their cults and, and women would have their breasts removed and so on. I mean, it's exactly what's going on now. So it's like when I, again, like when I hear the term gender fluidity, I'm just like, yeah, um, maybe a year ago, I would think, well, that's just, you know, one of these, you know, the language is being abused so often, but now I see it as like, no, this is cultic language. The people who you, most of the people who use it don't understand it, but the people who introduce this language, into the culture do understand it that that this is a this is a cult these are um religious obligations um they're trying to grow the cult that they they become very successful at getting certain powerful families involved um you know in one of the live streams i did i talked about um you know the guy who's or now it's the person who started um Sirius satellite radio and Sirius is also, you know, Sirius siren, Syrian, you know, you understand what I'm saying? So it's, it's part of this whole network. Um, but that person, the person who started Sirius XM satellite radio billionaire is, is very heavily involved in a lot of these trans, um, groups. And, you know, the other interesting thing is the whole mermaid thing. You know how, like I talked about the mermaid thing, like, the siren, when I did the whole siren, we can get back to the whole, the basic bullet points of the story in a bit. But, um, you know, the thing that I started to realize, because, you know, why is this mermaid stuff everywhere? Why are they trying to get all these girls to dress as mermaids and stuff? Well, it's part of this religious cult because, again, the siren goddess, Ducido, Atagardus, whatever, um, was a mermaid, you know, was worshipped as a mermaid. And um, when I see all this stuff, you know, you wonder, like, why is this so, why, why is, like, mermaid symbolism being pushed so aggressively to the point now that I don't even pay attention to it anymore? You know, I used to. I used to do these big posts, like, look at this. Why is this, why is this happening? Why is this in the culture? But now I realize it's part of this cult. It's part of this cultic network, you know. And it's being seeded into the culture because it's entrainment. It's the process of entrainment. It's sorcerous entrainment. You know, that they understand that sorcery is real and it's effective both on like a spiritual level and on a psychological level. So they use it and it, they use it all the time. And like I said, just go outside, go downtown, just drive around, go to the mall, whatever. You're going to see the siren everywhere you look. It's it's just like it's ubiquitous. I think that the siren now is like more ubiquitous than the cross. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like you're going to see the siren in more places that people frequent than you're going to see practically any other symbol that there is. Mermaid stuff is everywhere. And if you don't believe me, just go to like, you know, I don't know, whatever you're if you use Google or whomever, just enter in mermaid, click on news, and then it's like past seven days. 
and you're going to hundreds of articles. You understand what I mean? It's like they have mermaid schools and you can buy mermaid tails and everything like that. And I, I just was so puzzled by this. Like, what is this about? But now I understand that it's, it's cultic. There, there is, you know, what I call the siren cult. You know, cause I'm just going to mispronounce these names, you know? but, uh, um, there is, there is actually a siren cult out there. And interestingly enough, so, you know, you'd ask me about Jeff and Elizabeth and everybody. And it's like, the way this really starts is that there's a singer named Tim Buckley, right? And he's a folk singer. And he kind of came up in the sixties when folk and folk rock were really big and sort of the wake of Dylan, right? And um, he appeared on the last episode of The Monkees, and the episode was called The Frodus Caper. And it's basically like, if you watch it, you're like, it's surreal because it's all about like mind control and drugs and, and aliens and UFOs and smoking pot and all this kind of stuff. And, but at the end of the, the episode, Tim Buckley comes in and sings Song to the Siren. It's very strange because... The Monkees was canceled, and then they did a movie called Head, right? And then they do a song in it called The Other Porpoise Song. So it's it's carrying forth that same symbolism again. But the guy who they hired to promote that film is a guy named John Brockman. And John Brockman was basically Jeffrey Epstein's guru for what, you know, what they called the third culture. And the third culture would be where science and technology would become the driving forces of culture rather than artists and poets and musicians and so on, that science and technology. So, so, you know, for the past 20, 30 years where we've seen this emphasis on, on scientism and technologism, right. As religions, it's because of the same guy who is also attached sort of by osmosis to the siren. So, so what had happened is that, People forgot about the song. Tim Buckley dies in the mid-70s, doesn't even invite his firstborn son to the, or his family, you know, his new wife doesn't invite his firstborn son, who's called Scotty Moorhead, right? And Scotty Moorhead becomes a musician himself. And then, you know, in high school, he's my age, right? Or he was my age. Um, you know, he's playing like Rush and King Crimson, you know, like kind of proggy metal kind of stuff in high school. And he starts calling himself Jeff, Jeff Buckley. You know, he goes from being Scotty Moorhead to, you know, because he understands that he wants to be a musician. So it's good to have this cachet with his father, even though his father was not very famous. He was kind of a cult artist. So um, and then in 1983, which is the year that broke reality, and that's a whole other discussion. We should have some time. But um Elizabeth Frazier, the Cocteau Twins, sings a cover of Song to the Siren. And she sings it in such a way that, like, people just, you know, it just, everybody just melts when they hear it. Because it's just, she had, you know, there's a lot of pain in her voice, a lot of anguish, and, and that carried through. So Jeff Buckley becomes obsessed with her because, he, you know, he's introduced to her music. He's just like a guy into Russian stuff. And he's introduced her to her music because of the she's singing his father's song and then you know he just becomes more and more obsessed with her and then finally they meet and they begin to have an affair in like 1993 and so on and 
there's so many steps in between, so many steps in between. It's just too much. And there's another major figure involved in this that maybe a lot of your viewers aren't going to understand who I see as the actual siren. Because I, you know, to me, Elizabeth Frazier is the Sybil. I call her the Sybil because she is a Sybil. I mean, she fits all the, the ancient criteria of a Sybil. So she's heralding this. She's the herald. She's, she's announcing that the siren is the siren symbology, the siren archetype is rising. It's rising in the culture. It's going to become dominant the way it's becoming today, where it isn't just like you see the siren everywhere, but it's like the siren cult is growing the priesthood through, you know, all this sexual mutilation surgery and so on, just like they did 2,000 years ago, exactly like they did 2,000 years ago. So they have an affair or a relationship. I mean, neither one were married. Um, and then they split up because he starts taking up with this this other singer called Joan Wasser. Wasser Water, right? I mean, the symbolism is just, it's so, you know, when I did Greg Shell when we talked about this, he was just, his head was spinning. Um, but it's, it's a little bit too much to go on in this context. But, you know, so basically... Uh, they have, they have a relationship because of Song to the Siren. They're separated. Um, and then he drowns in the Wolf River Harbor in Memphis. And the whole event is just soaked from beginning to end in symbolism. Because at the day he drowns, it's the start of what's called the Memphis Carnival. And the Memphis Carnival is all about... Um, these secret societies, like literally, they call themselves secret societies that dress up as like Isis and Osiris and so on. Because of Memphis, Memphis, Egypt, they have the giant pyramid. And he drowns like right under the pyramid, right under the big pyramid, which is like the Bass Pro Shop. So it's the fish. So it's the pyramid and the fish. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, such, oh, it's such overkill. But to me, it's like it's such overkill to the point that it's just like it can't. You know, I think there, there, there's a very good chance that there was some sort of orchestration, that something was orchestrating this. And, and I've talked to William Ramsey because he's done all the work on the Smiley Face Killers. And actually, Jeff Buckley's death kind of fits the profile of a typical Smiley Face Killer death. You know what I'm saying? So, and this is the kind of thing that, like, even the normies, when, you know, guardians like the newspaper and stuff, when they've covered this whole story, it's just like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. Um, because, you know, the whole song to the siren is about, you know, swimming to your death. <laughs> you know, it's like the yeah. siren would lure sailors and so on to their death on the open seas. But one of her one of her other most famous songs, like one of her other top. So her, her probably her most famous, her three most favorite famous songs are um, Song to the Siren, right? And then Teardrop, which she did with Ma Massive Attack, which she actually was recording as he was drowning. So she wrote this song about him called Teardrop. And there, she's recording it in London as he disappears underneath the water in Memphis. And the other song, you know, a, a famous song, and it's kind of famous, you know, it's still popular, like raves and stuff, like a lot of Gen Zers seem to like it, is a song called Lorelei. And Lorelei is also a siren. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, there's a whole other backstory there. But it's like, because she is the Sybil, and Sybils, Sybils are oracles, right? 
but they don't work the way like they don't just sit there and go, oh, you will die. <laughs> you know, you will die when you enter the field of battle, oh, Caesar. You know, they they would. First of all, they sang. They sang their prophecies and they sang in like confusing language or even nonsense, which she also does. And they would also go out on tour and sing their songs in different cities and so on, like she does. So I, it's, we're waking up from a dream. We're waking up from the dream of modernity, okay? We're waking up from the dream of technological salvation. We are waking up from the dream of the industrial revolution. We are waking up from the dream of the enlightenment. We're waking up from the dream that things stopped working like they worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years where for instance generals and and kings and priests would all go consult with sibyls for their major decisions you know we, we thought in the wake of the enlightenment that that was all nonsense and that stuff doesn't really exist but it's like yeah it does and we're waking up from that dream we're waking you know as a collective we are waking up from the dream that you know people like darwin had you know what I'm saying? That that there was this mechanistic kind of world that, you know, the world was just a machine and we're just biological robots and so on. And interestingly enough, like I said, Jeffrey Epstein was the driving, in many ways, was the driving force behind this because he was funding all the people like um, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and all these kind of people. He was funding a lot of the people who, you know, it was it was almost like the last gasp for the scientific mindset, you know, for the, for the enlightenment thinking. And oddly enough, he was the driving force behind it. Okay. And um, and now we're we're realizing. I mean, I think the more enlightened among us realize that no despite all these wonderful machines that we have and despite refrigeration and air conditioning and, and motor cars and computer chat programs and all these kind of things that um, nature is as it has always been. We have not been able to change nature, you know, because nature doesn't really even notice us for the most part. You know, there's very little we can do to change nature, okay, and, you know, particularly human nature. And let's get back to what I was saying about with Aurelius and everything and Seneca. Like, human nature does not change. It's a constant. But what we are seeing now, what we are in the throes of seeing now, is the last gasp of that mechanistic, reductionistic, rationalistic worldview that really arose as a political compromise after the religious wars in Europe with the rise of the Enlightenment and was promulgated by the Freemasons and the Freemasons were basically the priesthood of the British Empire. And they put forth people like Darwin and all the rest of them. You know, they, the, the Freemasons put forth all these ideas to the Royal Society, which was kind of their <clears throat> um, clearinghouse for all these ideas that they wanted to put forth. Um, but they didn't work, you know. Um, they didn't work... Now, or they didn't work the way that they were promised to. And it's interesting because in the last few years, last couple of years of Jeffrey Epstein's life, you know, we saw all the stuff, you know, robots are just around the corner and AI is just around the corner. And, and uh, you know, we're going to be able to, like, have a cheek, a, a swab 
scraping from our cheek and be able to make babies without uteruses. I mean, just all this kind of absolute nonsense, all this like pie in the sky comic book science that all vanished overnight after Epstein died. So who is driving that stuff? You know, who is driving that propaganda? All right. And now, I mean, you know, you understand, I think a lot of people understand, particularly a lot of younger people, that the sorcerarchy is real, you know, that we are constantly being bombarded with, with ritual, ritualism and ritualistic symbolism, right? And there are a lot of people in a lot of powerful positions that have very strange beliefs, many of which date back thousands of years, and they act upon these beliefs, and these beliefs inform their lives, right? And I think the next step for a lot of people, and I, I, a step that I notice a lot of people have not yet taken, is to understand that there's a spiritual under, undergirding. And I don't mean like a spiritual, like, you know, spiritual enlightenment, like in a new age sense. I mean actual spirits, spiritual entities, like a whole host of them that are at work in the world. And this is like, this is the bridge too far for a lot of people. Because a lot of people just want to think, oh, this is just, you know, I don't know, NK Ultra kind of stuff. They don't want to, they don't want to take that next step because that's a very scary step to take. You know, it's kind of like the, the last step is a doozy, right? And that's the last step where you, you go from understanding that there are people with strange beliefs, strange cults doing strange things to like, well, they do it because this stuff works. They wouldn't, you know, this stuff wouldn't been, be done on the scale that it is for the, for the amount of time that it has been done if it didn't work. It works and it works because somebody's on the other side of the phone. You know, when you call them, right, spiritual world, they pick up the phone under certain conditions. I mean, I, I believe that, you know, the entities or, or the forces that these people seek to work with are deceptive and um, disloyal fickle, but they're also treacherous. I, I think, you know, being deceptive and treacherous is, is their basic nature. And history is just filled with examples of people who make contact with the spiritual world and believe its lies, believe its promises, and are destroyed by it. And, um, you know, examples, Paracelsus, John D. Uh, Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons. You know, these are people who used their Congress with dark spiritual forces, right? And achieved certain things in their lives. But they didn't understand that the bill always comes comes through, you know? It always comes due. And the price is always much, much higher than the price they thought they agreed to. Mm. And in some ways, I mean, I, I think this is a this is an argument that people just don't want to accept. But uh, you know, I see a part of my job now to kind of walk people through that. You know, kind of walk people through the realization that it isn't just us doing our weird shit. Okay, it's us doing our weird shit and trying, you know, trying to get the attention of these forces. 
You know what I mean? And like I said, I, these, these forces are not to be trusted. Now, some people see this as like, you know, you know, obviously demons, obviously ultra terrestrials, interdimensionals. I mean, how, you know, however you want to choose to see it. I mean, to me, those are all separate categories. I think that the, these forces that I'm talking about are part of our universe. They're part of the world. They're part of, of nature. They're part of our existence. And they always have been, you know, I mean, so I can say I love nature, but in order to love nature, you have to accept that they're like, like animals out there that will kill you or plants that will poison you or insects that can sting you and you can just drop it. You know, I mean, nature is not all, well, fluffy bunnies and, and cotton candy. It's, there's a lot, it's, it's a balance of darkness and light. Right. So, um, anyway, that's, you know, I probably didn't answer your question. No, you, 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 <laughs> I, like I said, I'm just so, I'm so in the zone right now. Like I'm just so deep in it that it's just, it's hard for me to like get into that whole elevator pitch aspect of it. That's fine. No. And I don't think you need to, you, you've explained that whole story in depth many times, but you did just say something that, sparked a thought because before we started recording, I mentioned my recent trip to New Jersey. Uh, I met a podcast friend named Ryan Bledsoe in person. Well, I guess you, you're not aware, but Chris Bledsoe, his father had a alien encounter with a being called Hathor and Hathor just came up in, um, Outdoor? Yeah. You mean like the Egyptian goddess? Right, right. And, and this is how this being identified itself to, uh, Mr. Bledsoe, and ever since this happened to him in the 70s or 80s, he has, you know, been basically harassed by NASA and other government agencies just trying to, they wrote a movie about his story that kind of ripped off the true facts and twisted it in a certain, spun it with a certain it, angle. It made? Yeah, it was a movie called The movie Fire called? in the Sky. Oh, well, that's the, um, what's that guy's name? Travis Walton story. Isn't oh, it? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I don't remember. It, it's the uh, event that happened in the Cape Fear River in North Carolina. So I always mistake it for that movie. But there is a. It's not Travis Walton. It, it's it's Chris Bledsoe. He's been on the uh, Greg show. Uh, but either way, I my point is kind of. Do you think that this family, take it or leave it, what they say is true? Um, could be in contact with a, for less, uh, for lack of a better term, a benevolent entity that is in this pantheon of gods, and that is why there's some military attention on them to, because the military and other groups are working with maybe Hathor's en enemy in that realm, right? You have they have their own feuds between each other. Yeah, well, I, yeah, that gets a little deep into speculation that I don't have the evidence really at hand okay. to, to comment on that aspect. But no, I, I mean, I do think that, you know, there is a whole spectrum of influences. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of them are very good. And a lot of them are benevolent. You know, it's like angels and demons, right? Um, I think the thing is, is that if something... <laughs> If something has the promise, whether explicitly or like in literature, something that you're going to be able to use contact with this being to gain advantage, unfair advantage, 
Um, that's something I think you generally want to avoid. Okay. Um, and it's just a question of like not getting something for nothing. You know, I mean, well, well, I, this is something I've been writing about on the blog for a number of years now. It's just like, well, what do you have to, you know, say if you're working, say, in like witchcraft and you want to put a hex on somebody or something and you, you need to appeal to some sort of entity, whether real or imagined, to perform this. It's like, well, what do you have to offer them? Like, what's in it for them? You know? And I think that the thing that I find so concerning is like there's this kind of thing in like place like Reddit where it's just like, oh, let's, you know, summon demons. And it starts like, ha ha ha, isn't it silly? But it's just like, well, no, let's it's really, you know, let's do this. You know, it's like let's let's try to do this. And it's just like and it just sort of devolves from there. I, you know, the thing I always say is like, you know, there are a lot of people who might start off wanting to you know almost like as seekers and then they end up in these very dark places because they don't realize that you know that these evil forces are very seductive you know they're, they're very highly seductive and they sort of ease you into this kind of understanding you know this this mindset of okay well i, I only care about what i want and I, I want to get whatever I want, and I'll do whatever it takes to do it. You know, this is the kind of thing where I say, like, so you have a lot of this ritualism, and then you see a lot of these kind of rituals that are, like, um, mock human sacrifice rituals. And now we're seeing a lot of this stuff with, like, the cannibalism and everything, you know. It's like, and it's all kind of, it always starts off as a joke. <laughs> but, you know, the thing I say, it's like, you know, you can do so many mock, mock, quote-unquote, mock human sacrifice rituals, and then you kind of think... I don't know, I kind of like would try to, you know, let's try the, doing the real thing. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you sit around drinking near beer, right? Or duels or something, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't even, do they even make that anymore? And it's probably dating myself horribly. But you're like, you know, you sit around and you, you're drinking like, uh, you know, no. You could say C you're smoking like, CBD you instead of smoking regular weed. I think that would be a more appropriate uh, analogy these yeah. days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, so after a while, you know, when you, you're going through the motions, you think, well, I don't know, let's kind of try the real thing, you know? Uh, you know, it's a bit of a leap, but why not? And, I, you know, I just see this. I see so many people who a year or two ago were kind of joking about that kind of stuff, and now they're, like, just, like, full tilt evil, you know? And even if they aren't, even if they aren't doing, like, the theological aspects of it anymore you know you see people on like twitter for instance who just have like really evil mindsets you know what i mean they just they think and they they think and act and express evil and if you told them maybe a year or two ago that that's where they were going to end up they would probably just think oh you know you're like satanic panic kind of guy right you know, we should do a thing on satanic panic because it's just, it's the biggest bullshit out there. But, um, you know, they don't understand that it's just like they're not that smart and they have nothing to offer, you know, these entities except for their souls, basically. You know, they're going to just end up eating your soul. You know, it's just like. Well, and I guess the question. If you think. That, 
Sorry, I guess the question that I was trying to pose is more like, you know, people see your research and they see that you're researching this cult of the siren and they might be thinking like, well, where are the forces of light working for us? And I I, I wonder, is it like a Star Trek kind of non-intervention thing where like the forces of good are just not willing to break the rules enough to come and play ball and the evil ones are, so they're manipulating us in this sort of place where the the good entities they're just like well we have to let them figure it out on their own otherwise we'll be breaking the rules no i don't i don't believe that at all i think you know i think you you have to go out and work but they're they're out there Mm. you know uh you know benevolent spirits i i think are out there but they're not going to offer you they're not going to, they're not going to let you cheat. They're not going to give you like little shortcuts and, right. you know, um, unfair advantage. Uh, if you want to know where the benevolent spirits are, just go out into nature and just put your antenna up. They're going to be all over you. Like white on rice, believe me. They're going to be all over you. Go out into the woods, go out into the ocean, take a dog with you take a couple dogs with you, you know, uh, just open yourself up and just say, here I am. I'm not asking for anything. I don't want anything from you. Let's just hang out. And this is what I, you know, this is what I call the power of communion. And this is, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when I was putting together my book, uh, the endless American midnight. And it's interesting, you know, I, I have a, um, a chapter in there called until it happened to me about like, how a lot of people don't understand a lot of this stuff until it reaches into their lives. Right. But I remember it was about, I think it was like 2014 or 2015. And I was out there at night and like where I live, it's, it's a really interesting area because it's like a lot of granite and your granite seems to have some sort of power, you know, cause of mica and so on, you know, there's a quarry right down here, but they're also like, um, like six, six cemeteries within walking distance of my house. So there's the spirits of the dead, you know, ancestral spirits and so on. Um, just go out, just go out there and, and, and hang out with them. And, you know, I call it communion. You know what I mean? And, and it's a word that I've used for a while now. And I remember, you know, I, don't, I think it was maybe 2015. But anyway, I, I came home and I wrote a, a blog post about it. I call it the C word. You know, and it's like, just get out there and commune, you know, open yourself up and don't expect, you know, some sort of dramatic epiphany because they have their entrainment process too. You know, it's, 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 that's the reality of life. You know, everything is every single day. The decisions that you make every single day, you know, it's like the, the things that you do every day to work towards a goal, but that's nature. You know, a tree growing, uh, photosynthesizing, creating chlorophyll, you know, taking in carbon dioxide, releasing oxygen every minute of every day. It's just what they do. You know what I'm saying? And I, I'll probably just lose everybody right now, but you know, I really believe in tree spirits. I think the trees are, are very highly spiritual. I think this uh, is right at home it, here, Chris. This is, you're speaking my language and I, I'm with you. Tree spirits, 
animal spirits, plant spirits. I got to send you the the book I wrote. It's very short, only 16 pages, but it's it it could be titled how to commune based on everything you're describing. I, I think we're yeah, this is right at home on this podcast. Well, so I don't know if I told you the story. I mean, I've told the story a lot, but I had like um you know, or I do have like a a, a medical condition, chronic pain condition. Like I'm not like today, I'm not even feeling that great. I woke up not feeling that great. But um, what had happened is that I, for a number of years, I dealt with it naturally. You know, I did um, like martial arts and stuff where you do a lot of stretching. That's really helpful. And I was doing like elimination diet, you know. I was, so I was working with like uh, supplements and diet and exercise and so on. But um, then I started getting really, like really super busy with my work. And I just couldn't do that stuff the way I doing it and, I, and my symptoms just kept getting worse and worse and worse and um you know then i start i got on the um the pharmaceutical uh express train to hell and wrote it all the way down um you know i i i can't believe it but so by the t- by the time i was ready to get off the train and that's a whole other story in itself. But it's like I was taking uh, like 90 milligrams of oxymorphone a day, which is like, I, I think it's like 20 something tabs of Percocet, you know, I was taking. And then on top of that, I was taking another painkiller called Tramadol. Uh, was it Tramadol? No, it wasn't Tramadol. It was uh, brain name is Nucinta, but I was taking 150 milligrams of that. And then I was taking um like 10, I think it was like 10 milligrams of diazepam and then uh, to pyramid Topamax, which is like this epilepsy drug. So it, like, I didn't start that way. Right. But it's just like, again, it was this step-by-step process. And it's like, you take opioids for a certain period of time and you start to build up a tolerance. So it's like, people are like, how can you take that much? How, you know, how do, how are you taking like 90 milligrams of oxymorphone and, you know, 150 milligrams of this other stuff. That's because of tolerance. Your body tolerates it, you know. Um, how do most junkies die? Well, they, they die because, well, now they die because of fentanyl. But the classic death trip for junkies is they get off the drugs for a while and then they relapse. You know, they get clean, they relapse, and they don't understand that they don't have the same tolerance. They do. So tolerance is a huge thing. So it's like... How did I, how was I just on this like ridiculous amount of, of pharmaceutical opioids and such? Well, it's because of tolerance. It didn't happen overnight. And it deadened me to the spiritual world. Like I was just, I was spiritually dead for a number, very long time. And I, and it wasn't like, this wasn't an abstraction to me. It's just like, this is something that I felt all day, every day. And then it got to the point that these drugs just, fuck your brains up so so much that you start to have what's called paradoxical effects where you take a painkiller and it gives you pain it, it makes you makes your pain worse it's called you know paradoxical effect and you know i got to the point where there would be just days where i would just i couldn't do anything i couldn't read i couldn't sleep i couldn't watch television i was in so much like the pain was just so intense that all i did was just like just writhe in bed all day. Horrible. More days than I can count. Yeah. So not only was I dead to the spirit world, but it's just like, 
I was in agony, you know? I mean, it really was like going through hell for a number of years, you know? I mean, it was really, really bad. And, you know, if I showed you pictures of myself, I mean, I was all bloated and I, I started to get jaundice because that stuff fucks up your liver really bad. You know, so I always had this like yellowy kind of jaundice. And, um, and then when I, you know, there was a really bad period when I started going through withdrawal and Elizabeth, you know, I mean, it's funny cause I got on the, the whole siren thing again, because when Chris Cornell died and Chris Cornell, like, you know, I, I understand that guy in a lot of ways, you know, cause he was also on the opioid train to hell, you know? And I, I think like, uh, like Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, they were in that band audio safe together. And he, his, his whole point of view was like, you know, the drugs finally got him, you know? I mean, I, I can't confirm or deny that, but it's just like, Chris Cornell's death was like kind of a wake up call for me. And it just started this whole process. But then I realized that he had this relationship with Jeff Buckley and then that, you know, ties him into the siren and to Elizabeth and so on. But the whole point is that, you know, I had to, my doctor, this quack doctor that I was seeing got his license pulled. He got the state took his license away. So uh, I could either go on the black market, start trying to find these drugs, black market, try to find another doctor, another sleazebag doctor who's going to keep me on this train to hell, or I can get off these drugs. So I chose the third option. I chose to get off them. You know, I chose the hardest. <laughs> I chose the hardest <laughs> option, right? Because, you know, when I started seeing another doctor for other stuff, he's just like, you really should have been in the hospital. You, sh you shouldn't have done this. You know, it's like, this is how people die when they're on that you know, this amount of pharmaceuticals and they, they try to get off them. So I went through like really bad withdrawal for a while, but it was Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth Frazier who, who got me out of it. You know, it was her voice. There's something, there's something in her voice that stimulates the same, you know, those same receptors, those opiate receptors in the brain. I can't explain it. It's supernatural. It's, it, it literally is supernatural. But, um, and it was because of this whole, like this whole siren thing that I, I talked about, you know, again, like a while ago. And then I brought it up in relation to Chris Cornell's death and everything. And it just like, kind of like changed my whole life. But it, the long and short of this is that this whole process got me back. Like it turned my spiritual radio back on. Like my antennas, my spiritual antennas, like my big, you know, my big uh, SETI dishes, like, you know, those big like kind of radio telescope dishes, you know, <clears throat> in my, my spirit, my soul would, would turn back on. And I started to reconnect to the spirit world. And, and it's something that I had lost for at least 10 years of my life. You know, so not only was my, like, 10 years of my life just gone, like, just wasted. Um, you know, like, my prime earning years was kind of stolen away from me. But, um, you know, like, my spiritual perception was erased. It was just gone. It, it was literally like you're listening to a radio and somebody just comes in and turns it off. That simple. That simple. And that lasted for 10 years. And, and it. And so even when I was in like the worst throes of withdrawal, like even, you know, so when I was going through withdrawal and it lasted for months, all right, it wasn't just like cold turkey, 
you know what I mean? Because of the amount and the, the types of drugs that I was on. So my withdrawal, like I was in, so I went from being in hell to like being in the ninth circle of hell for months, for months. Okay. But even in the depths of that, even in the depths of that, I noticed that the signal, I, st- I started hearing the signal again. You know, it's like my spiritual antennae would turn back on. Like I, I was, I was like, oh shit. And it was interesting because I don't know if you've ever known anybody who's gone through withdrawal, but the one thing you experience the most when you're going through withdrawal is fear. Just raw, naked fear on a constant basis. And there are a number of reasons for that. A lot of it's because, you know, the drugs sort of deaden that response in you. But, you know, without sounding too Manson about this, you know, fear is part of awareness. You know, fear is, you know, fear is an important part of our awareness. So the thing is not to drown out the fear to escape the fear. The the thing is to sort of harmonize yourself with it and just like accept it and just move on. You know what I mean? And then it kind of like stops bothering after a while because you start to strengthen yourself in certain ways. So, um, It was like really joyous to recover that after a while. And like I said, Elizabeth was a huge part of that. But um, it also got to the point where I would be walking around and I couldn't tell whether I was dreaming or not or I was awake. And it's just like, I don't know if it's a feeling, you know, because feelings, people think are like sort of emotions. It's, it wasn't a feeling like an emotion. It was a feeling like a sensation. You know what I mean? Like when you're underwater or you know, in, in hot or, or cold. Or whatever. It's like you know, when it's your spine's where, tingling or like your skin's crawling, like hairs on the back of your neck. Like, a, no, that's, 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 that's more like specific. I'm just saying like, you know, it's like you're it's immersed in it of, of a state of, and I just couldn't tell whether, whether I was awake or dreaming and it still happens, you know, like particularly under certain conditions, like I'm out there and I'm just like, am I awake? Or am I asleep? Because it feels like the sensation I have somehow feels, you know, when you have lucid dreaming or a vivid dream or something. And I, I just couldn't, I, it got to the point where I couldn't tell the difference anymore, you know? And the thing that I real, I mean, a lot of that is, I think, the way we're supposed to feel, you know? I, I think that's the way that animals feel, you know what I mean? And, and I think people who've begun to, cut themselves away from the, the matrix feel. I, mean, I think that's like, I literally, I, I know that it's, it's going to sound delusional, but I think that's the way you're supposed to feel. You know what I mean? You're supposed to, you know, or you're supposed to sense, you know, you're supposed to sense that that veil between the waking world and the, you know, the dreaming world is extremely thin, Right. And this is why cultures, you know, Aboriginal cultures, shamanistic cultures, and so on, you know, so much of what they do, so much of their pursuits, um, their spiritual pursuits, are about, you know, breaking through that veil and walking in and out, you know, in and out of dream reality, consensus reality, you know, to the point that, you know, you're almost in both simultaneously. And this is why, you know, you know, you asked me about like the, the, um, the beneficent spirits. And I, I think that a, a huge part of the process 
is getting to that point, you know, getting to that point where you're, you're beyond separation. You know what I mean? You're beyond in and out, you know, you're, you're beyond within and without, you know, you're beyond sleep and wake, you know, you know what I'm saying? And then when you get to that point, that's when communion just becomes something that's as, as natural as anything that you do. You know, it's, it's almost like an automatic process, you know? So when I go outside and like I said, I mean, certain conditions, particularly like I'll just look at the trees and I'm, I'm just like, yeah, I know, you know, it's like, hi, you know, I mean, it isn't, it isn't like I'm sitting there talking to the fucking trees cause I don't have to, you know, cause that's not how they commune with you. You know what I mean? It, they commune with you on a different level, but it's, it's as real as you and I talking the way we're talking right now. It's as real and it's as natural and it's, it's almost as like ordinary to me now. And it's, you know, I'm not so delusional that I think they, you know, it's like they're ants or something <laughs> like Lord of the Rings and they're saying, oh, you know, like they're talking in some voice, but because it's like, that's not what they do. They don't have, like, they don't have throat centers and vocal cords and tongues and breath. And you know, that's not how they communicate with you, but they do. You just need to understand the way, you know, you need to understand their language and their, their modes of communication, you know. And, and to me, it's like that with the entire spiritual world, you know. Um, I, Like I said, so I've got a lot of these cemeteries around me, and a lot of them are really beautiful places. And they're almost like parks, you know. And when I, just before I started the work that led to, you know, The Secret Sun and everything like that, and by the way, this is going to be coming up on my 15th anniversary of The Secret Sun, Um I spent a lot of time in these cemeteries, right? Walking around and just, you know, feeling empowered by it, you know? Because, again, I'm, I'm just going to say one thing after another that's just going to lose half your audience. But it's just like, I think that these, these spirits of the dead like, like the company. You know, I, <laughs> I realize how crazy that sounds, but it's just like, <laughs> I think they enjoy it. You know, I think they're lonely. You know, they like they like the company of the living. Right. And I again I, I realize that that just sounds like delusional and everything. No, like I it's don't just like it I, sounds like delusional to, until you experience it, you know? Yeah, and I mean that explains the you know, prominent burial sites of our ancestors. I mean, I was just having a conversation yesterday and a person mentioned that the DNA of a human being, it basically becomes a part of the soil when someone's buried there. So a burial mound is just a big heap of thousands of people's DNA. And our DNA is something that we can connect with. It's a light code. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't think you're out of pocket on this show. Everybody's with you. And we, we had a really interesting conversation with a guy named Peter Jenks recently. He's written a book called Occult Thailand. And he talked about how in Thailand, they are just obsessed with the dead. And, and they have these like very deep rituals. They consecrate buildings with 
the spirit of the dead and little amulets and you could even buy an amulet that has a happy ghost in it that will keep you you safe so you know it might be foreign to us in america but it's it feels like that was programmed in you know the horror movie culture sort of was birthed out of this theosophical movement and spiritualist movement that was in the 19th century and kind of blended with some science fiction writing that was going on and now it's just you know uh, light of, night of the living dead shock fest type stuff and gore and gross stuff but uh i mean it, it definitely feels like we've been yeah, the zombies are us. Mm. the zombies are zombies are, are, are who we are like who we are afraid that we really are just like these automatons these destructive automatons that just operate on pure impulse you know i think we fear that about ourselves so that's why, like, people who are into zombie stuff, they never see themselves as, like, you know, A, one of the zombies, or B, like, you know, in the pile of bodies that, you know, whatever. Uh, in some it's crazy. City. They see themselves as the plucky. Oh, What's it, that? It's crazy when you see these, like, bumper stickers that say, like, zombie hunter. You might as well have a bumper sticker that says serial killer on. <laughs> you know, it's, like, craziness. Yeah, and it's very dehumanizing, but it's, you know, it's also part of, like, this demonic energy, you know, or the dehumanization process. But, um, you know, like, the whole idea of the Grateful Dead, like, not the band, but, like, I, I think, you know, I think I was into the dead for a while, right? And I, my wife and I, this is when I was probably, like, your age. How old are you? Like, 22, right? No, I'll be 28 in October. I'm 27. I'm in the 27 okay. Okay. <laughs> Survivor so, Club. <laughs> when, all right. So when I was in my early 20s, like, um, you know, because I was into hardcore punk and everything, and I just got so burnt out and it started getting really dark. So I sort of like went kind of hippie uh, in, in the opposite direction. And my wife and I used to take our dog and we'd listen to like Europe 72 and stuff and go to the go to the park there's this really beautiful park around here it's like just beautiful rivers and like waterfalls it's just amazing and it's just like you know and then i started having dreams you know where like I, i'd go to the park and i just come across like this this like beautiful tribe of brothers and sisters you know almost like rainbow kind of people just like oh there's there's, there's my tribe they're my people you know it's very you know it's almost like it always remind me of like you know, when I was a kid. You, you're gonna not get this reference at all, but there was this uh, movie called Godspell, which is sort of this musical based on the Gospel of Mark and everything. But um, so the so the idea of the dead, you know, the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's like <sighs> politics has influenced religion in so so many ways. But you know, Christians used to worship in the catacombs. And they didn't worship in the catacombs, you know, this nonsense. Oh, they had to go down there because, you know, they were being repressed and everything. Like, like that's not why they went down to the catacombs. They went down to the catacombs because it was like, you know, the spirits of the dead, you know, ancestral spirits. They didn't see that as being, you know, antithetical to, the, to their Christian beliefs because the whole idea of Christianity was like, you know, the dead, you know, the dead rising. The dead rising on Judgment Day and and be, being granted eternal life, so it, it makes perfect sense that you want to be around you know the ancestral spirits and the spirits of the dead because that's really what it's all about. Ultimately, it's about bringing the dead back to life. You know what I mean? It's it's like a benevolent form of, of necromancy, but um, 
So, no, so the point being, the point being is that there is, to me, in my experience, and I'm not saying my beliefs, I'm talking about my experience, I'm much more, you know, experiential than into ide- ideology or theology, whatever. I, I much more focus on experience, right? And in my experience, it's just like, I understand that there is, you know, an entire realm that's available to you on demand, but you need to step away. You know, you can't take this world that they're in now out into that world. You have to leave this world behind. You know, you have to leave Twitter and all the rest of it behind and go out into that world and commune with these spirits on their own terms. You know what I mean? And it's very empowering. And, you know, one of the things I, I was thinking, so like I told you, like, the work that I had done sort of led to, um, you know, my book, Our Gods Wear Spandex and everything. So what I, what I was doing while I was working on the book is I just go on these huge walkabouts and these, these just basically giant necropolises. I mean, it's really the best term for them, necropolises, right? And again, I, I realized that this maybe won't, hopefully won't sound strange to your listeners, but I felt like they, they were lending me their power. You know what I mean? I felt like the spirits of the dead, the grateful dead, not, not the, not the big, you know, the capital grateful dead, not the capital G capital D grateful dead, but the, the, the grateful, the dead who are grateful, right? Because again, we, we bury the, we, we bury our ancestors away and we just forget about them. You know what I mean? But, they haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> they haven't gone. I mean, well, first of all, I'm a big believer in reincarnation. So it's like, I think in a lot of ways, I say they, that's like the waiting room, the waiting room for the next, the next assignment. Okay. Like I'm, I'm a very big believer in reincarnation because I think that's nature. Nature, that's the way nature works. Nature is cyclical. Nature takes matter, breaks it down, and then reconstitutes it. You understand what I'm saying? Like a tree dies and it falls and insects and everything come along and consume it or, you know, at least hollow it out and the rest of it breaks down into soil and that's where the next trees grow from. You know, I mean, this is just, you know, it's like when I I cut my grass, I don't ever rake it up or use like a, um, you know, one of those catcher bags. Because the grass that you cut fertilizes the soil. You see what I'm saying? And you're basically just creating like a, a kind of like a mulch. It's fertilizer. Because that's the way of nature. Nature, nature in its ideal form, reuses everything. Okay? Everything. And trees and plants and animals and all those great things... They're also inhabited by spirit, okay? They're spiritual entities as well, okay? And we, too, are eventually, you know, recycled, you know? Uh, I, don't want, I don't want to say, like, I don't want to use the term reborn, 
because that's sort of like, well, you, you know, you're going to be Mark Steves again. You know, it's like you're just going to just that's not the way it works. I, I don't believe that's the way it works. But, you know, I, I had experience. I mean, I, again, like in the Endless American Midnight, I'm just going to plug my book, The Endless American Midnight. By the time this airs, I hopefully should have the ebook, the new edition ebook out that uh, I hope to have out. Maybe probably won't because. I'm still working on the siren stuff. But anyway, the point is, is, you know, I talked about re reincarnation and I talked about when I was a kid, um, I was really obsessed with things from the thirties and the forties, like thirties and early forties, right? Like the, the toys and the, the comic books and the radio shows and the, 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 the movies, and all this stuff. Right. I even made my mother buy me this shit called Moxie. Moxie was like the, a popular soda in the thirties. It tastes like shit, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I just, you know, I, I wanted, you know, I was just fixated on this, but I also had these recurring dreams that I was in the woods. I was a soldier in the woods and it always ended with like somebody coming from behind a tree with like a, a bayonet, like a rifle and a bayonet. Okay. And like, and then I'd wake up and then I stopped, you know, I stopped having these experiences, I think maybe when I was around nine or 10, right? And then later on, and I didn't think anything about this. It's just like, this is just what I experienced on a daily basis. Then I went back and realized, oh, shit. You know, when you read the, the literature on reincarnation, that's like a, a classic, classic pattern that young children, particularly young boys, will have very clear not necessarily memories, but like we'll have attachments to things. But then you have the extreme case of like, they'll tell their parents, well, I remember I was this person and I lived over here and I did this. And then they go to the house and like, oh shit, yeah, there was somebody who lived there and fit that description. You know what I mean? There, there are a lot of these kind of reports where kids are telling their parents or telling their adults, whoever, you know, their prior incarnation. And then they can go back and verify these things. You know, I mean, I don't need that to be convinced of the reality of reincarnation, but I'm just saying that that's that evidence is available. Whether you choose to believe it or not is another thing, but um, it's there. So, um, again, yeah, so like the work that I'm doing now that I've been doing, I really feel I got a big head start from the dead, you know, from the spirits, ancestral spirits and all that good stuff. Because I was spending a lot of time walking around thinking about what I was doing and all this kind of stuff. And, but also just vibing, just vibing in these giant, beautiful necropolises. You know? So, uh, and that's a time in my life that I will all, always treasure. And it's also a time in my life that was, that was an, an, an awareness and experience that was taken away from me by the drugs, you know, by the opioids and all these horrible compounds and shit. Mm. So, um, and, you know, the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, now I've discovered that, like, just Delta 9 edibles, infinitely more effective at reducing inflammation than fucking Vicodin and all that <laughs> other shit. Yeah. Oh man. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a big reason why my family was so against my uh, lifestyle and habits. Cause they're like, you just smoke weed all the time. And as a, 
martial artist, it was the, you know, it was the easiest way to, you know, enhance my performance, so to speak, right? Like you just get high either before or after you train and it's going to be beneficial. I'm not a scientist. I couldn't tell you how, but my, uh, my record shows it. I took my, my wrestling team to state championship my senior year. So, (laughs) and I was fueled by marijuana if that's a, if that's an endorsement, but yeah, I, I'm, really glad to to hear that you know you've overcome that chris and i appreciate you sharing that uh story because i hadn't heard it before i've heard bits and pieces but uh but no i I think that that's something that this audience certainly can relate to and myself i'll tell you i'll tell you i just want to tell you one more thing sure i've also i've also noticed that like um microdosing is better for my add than uh than pharmaceuticals Yeah, I, uh, it, but it, it, unfortunately, like the microdosing kind of has its downsides in other ways. But uh. I've experimented with microdosing uh, in the production of this podcast. I find that I end up putting a lot more music in the podcast when I'm microdosing than when I'm not. So I think the audience appreciates uh, that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I I remember one time where I had a very low. I was at a very low point in my life very alone in my mind, even though I probably had more friends than I realized. But I went to a cemetery, I went to a graveyard in the middle of town. And the town I live in was born in is almost 400 years old, right? It's one of these towns founded in the 1600s. So yeah, I was born here and and I have a, a connection to this graveyard, not through any family members, but just through being born here. And I remember burning Palo Santo and having just an experience of like almost like somebody patting me on the shoulder, like you're doing, you're doing what you need to do. And I've never gotten to that low of a point since then. And I've also learned now that, you know, going out into nature is what I've always instinctually sought out. And uh, when I'm deprived of that, I'm usually not at my best. So yeah, I, I love what you're saying, Chris, and I think it's it's definitely worth talking about. I wonder, though, when it comes to this cult of the siren and these benevolent forces, have you seen any uh, opposition to these groups that are, you know, what we could maybe deem cult of the siren? Have you seen anybody stand against them? Uh, have they been kind of unopposed? Well... Couple things that you got to realize is that first of all, these groups don't think of themselves as as evil or doing evil, or they think that we're evil. They think their opponents are evil. They think that they have the answer. They think that they know how everyone else should live. You know, they've they've got the epiphany. They have the um, the true gnosis. Okay. And, and this is something that I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding. You know, the thing I try to tell them is like, you know, people who are like Satanists, um, they're just weirdos and perverts. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I read recently, um, I think it was, so there's this, uh, it was Bishop Fulton Sheen, and he was sort of like um, 
he was a Catholic uh, bishop. I think he became a cardinal. And he used to have like a television show. But, you know, he said something like, you know, the devil understands that um, people are not going to want to sign up for evil. You know, they're not that depraved, right? You know, only a few or select few are, are that depraved. But what you can seduce people with is a false good. Okay? Now, when you talk about, so, the cult of the siren is it's a complicated thing. Um, and it is like this goddess worship. And it kind of, it took a huge turn in Syria and like the turn of the millennium, the, you know, the first millennium. But, it, you know, it, it goes back to, like I said, like to Inanna, Ishtar, Starte, Asherah, Thor, Aphrodite, on and on. So it's like love and sex and war. You know, a lot of these goddesses that were the goddesses of love were also the goddesses of war, which is kind of very interesting insight on the human condition, right? But um, you've got to understand that these religions, these cults go back a long time. Nearly all of them um, infinitely older than any established religion today. All right? Now, I'm, some people would make an argument that, like, maybe Hinduism has been around for a long time. And maybe it has been, but I don't know if in the, the form that we would recognize it. But um, so these cults go back a long time. I mean, in some regards, they go back to, like, the Stone Age, literally. So when people buy into these cults, part of the, the propaganda is like, well, we're, you know, we're, we've been unjustly maligned. You know, we're the, we're the originators. You know, these uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, whoever, they're like these Johnny-come-latelys who just forced us underground. You know, but we're the, we're the real beliefs. We're the real religion. We're the, we're the religion that actually produces results rather than just, you know, hopeful feelings and so on. So, you know, I talk about, you know, various cults, you know, I'm kind of on the whole siren thing. And sirens, again, it's shorthand for these other figures. But, you know, I've talked a lot, a lot about the Mythos cults. I've been talking about the Mythos cults since I started doing the blog. So I've been talking about it for 15 years publicly. And it's something that people are just starting to, to get the, you know, the reality. of They're starting to get the hang of it. You know, they're starting to realize that I wasn't just making this shit up. Because it takes a while for you to understand the patterns and understand the, the symbology. But, again, I mean, I think that, it, A, these cults believe that they have the true revelation and everyone else afterwards is a heretic. But there's also, like, class involved. Like, you know, you'll see a lot of these groups, a lot of these cults that are very popular with, like, the rich, you know. And it's part of, like separating themselves from the rest of the world. You know, you, you believe different things because, you know, you don't want to practice the religions that the, the hoi polloi. But look at the, but, it, you know, if you want to start to understand the reality of this, you've got to look at, you know, you've got to look at the specific doctrines and practices of the religion, see how they're becoming not only widespread, but you often sanctioned by corporate pressure 
law in, in any ways. And you just look at the assault that we're seeing on established religion. The thing that people really need to realize, and, and wokeness is also is a huge part of this. And, you know, I have these Knowles' laws that, like, the ancient cults will be reestablished under the cover of woke. And that is happening right now, brother. That's happening right now, every day. Problem is, is that people just don't understand it. So people look at woke and just think it's this, like, weird kind of communistic thing. And in many ways it is, but... What I see it as is a cover. It's they're running cover, in many cases unwittingly, for this reestablishment of the old state cults. There is an undeniable and, and increasingly open effort to, to recreate the state cults. So you, you don't just have a government that, you know, you separated, you know, separation of church and state and just separated from your government altogether. You know, totalitarianism is when the government is everything and you, everyone is part of it. Everyone is beholden to it. And how can anybody deny in 2022 that that is not unfolding every single day, or at least the efforts to make it so. Right. The hope for me, you know, the hope in this is that, these ideas are not going to work. They're not practical. They're pipe dreams. And the cultic mindset automatically instills incompetence. Always. Always. No matter what the cult is. Because when you start to buy into a cultic mindset, you have to start denying huge swaths of reality that contradict your cultic beliefs. Okay. And what that does is that fosters a separation from reality, which in turn fosters incompetence. And we might have discussed this. I Forgive me, I've just, you know, my head's just all over the place right now with the work that I'm doing. But it's just like, I'm really concerned about the loss of competence. You know, the comp, just basic competence is something that is breaking down very, very quickly. And I'm just afraid that, like, we're going to just start seeing airplanes fall out of the sky. Okay? I mean, I've said over and over again that I would be shocked if we still have a working internet. Right. You know, this is one of the reasons why I don't buy crypto. Because, and people, crypto people get very cultic about it. And they think that I'm attacking crypto. I'm I'm not attacking crypto. I'm I'm saying that I don't feel comfortable with it because crypto requires a a state-of-the-art worldwide internet to operate, all right? So all these plans, all this Agenda 2030 and Bill Gates and the World Economic Foundation, these people are insane. And I really honestly believe that this COVID rollout or whatever you want to call it, this COVID campaign just did not work the way that they thought it was going to work. And the problem being is that in order to make these kind of plans work, you have to have a very high degree of competence from top to bottom. You know, you need your foot soldiers on the streets to be very highly competent. And because you're more concerned with bringing them into this cultic mindset rather than just 
exercising basic skill, you're defeating yourself. So your, your plans become more and more ambitious, you know, agenda 2030, so on and so on. At the same time, your absolute inability to carry these plans out, you know, defeats you. A great example. So today's Tuesday. So we recently had, um, what's that guy's name, that Russian guy? Uh, Dugan? I'm, I'm, I'm terrible with names. The what they, the guy they call um, Putin's brain. What is that Andrew, guy's name? Andrew Dugan? Or Alexander Dugan? Dugan? Alexander Dugan, right. So um, his daughter was assassinated, or his daughter was killed, and they believe that the, that he was the target. Now, that to me is like so emblematic of the, the ruling class that they can't even carry out a basic assassination anymore. Okay? I mean, just a basic car bombing. It isn't like, you know, like where they try to like put explosives in Fidel's, Fidel Castro's cigars or something. I mean, this is just basic, you know, meat and potatoes espionage. They can't, they can't even do that right. And again, I really believe that the COVID thing, whatever you want to call it, did not go the way they had planned it to go. I think that this, that was, they were going to use this to really get the whole new world view up and running in toto. And it didn't work. And why didn't it work? Because, you know, they put in the Biden administration and they're just full of fucking idiots. I mean, these people are idiots. All right. And the problem is with these political parties is that they don't want you to be an independent thinker. They want you to be a drone. Okay, well, that's fine. You know, drones do what they're told, right? But they're not very good at problem solving and independent thinking. Drones are not very good at those kind of things. And when you're in the field, you know, I always use the, the old Mike Tyson expression, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, when you're in this, when you're in this cultic mindset that you see, you could, if you don't believe me, that this cultic mindset, and I'm not talking like the theology or the, whatever kind of mythology. I'm just talking a basic cultic mindset that, that all these people subscribe to that expresses itself predominantly in these political cults. Just go on Twitter. You're going to see it. Twitter, like being on Twitter is like red pilled me like you wouldn't believe. Or maybe it's black pilled me. I'm not even sure. But it's like I start to realize that it's like these people are all completely entrained completely ensorcelled, completely brainwashed, and completely fucking incompetent. They can't, they can't do their fucking jobs anymore because they just think about constantly the cultic ideology, the cultic mindset, the cultic, you know, identifying the, the heretics or the, or the backsliders or the infidels. I mean, that's, they're more concerned with enforcing cult ideology than just getting basic things done. They cannot do basic things anymore. And you just see, we're just seeing this over and over and over and over again. I mean, look at the um, Afghanistan clusterfuck, right? Do you really think that that's, they planned that, that that's what they wanted to happen? You know, 
And, and this is another thing that I just really have a problem with, like Q kind of thinking, where the goalpost is constantly moved. It's like, well, there's this whole concept of fourth dimensional chess. So anytime like they fuck up, they actually meant to fuck up and there's this and there's this. And, you know, it's like, no, they didn't. They just fucked up, you know, and, and they, they put out this kind of brainwashing, this whole fourth dimensional chess brainwashing. So, you know, people won't just realize that these people don't know what the hell they're doing. And it isn't just the Democrats. It's also the Republicans. It isn't just Biden. It's also Trump. I mean, Trump was just like, it was like a train wreck. It was an everyday train wreck. The only problem is that Biden was even worse or is even worse. So at the same time, like I said, there is this huge push for any number of kind of cultic beliefs and ideologies. They're going to defeat themselves because cults breed incompetence always, always. All right. Always just study the history of cults and look at how 99% of them just fall apart within a few years. And they fall, not only fall apart, but they fall apart badly. So you have the examples of like Heaven's Gate and Jonestown and Solar Temple. You know, you have these like really extreme uh, Alm Shariqio. You have these really extreme examples when these cults crash and burn, they, they crash and burn hard. And a lot of times they take a lot of innocent people with them. But since I've studied this mentality for a long time, I mean, I've been interested in this stuff since I was a kid. I just see the same manners or the same modes of thinking everywhere, particularly amongst the establishment. So listen, the establishment, you know, when I say the establishment is going to fail, all right, no matter how much resources they have, no, you know, no matter how long these plans have been in the works for, they're all ultimately going to fail. And they're ultimately going to fail because the same mechanism that, requ- that they require to get people to go along with this also instills absolute um, like I said, incompetence. I mean, I keep using that word over and over again, but it's just like they can't do anything. You know, for instance, we're seeing this, and it is just here. Excuse me. I've been seeing like in China, like China's just become this cult of personality around Xi Jinping, right? But the problem is, is that since everybody's afraid to piss him off or to bring him bad news, they don't. But they also know what they're doing. So you have uh, somebody, or was it Peter Zion was talking about like this example of like people trying to um, uh, disinfect runways, airport runways. What the fuck do you need to, what, what is that, what, why? You know, it's like, it's totally pointless. But it's like, you know, when, with cultic, with cultic thinking, with the cultic mentality, all the decision-making filters up to the top, often to just one person, just one person or, or, or a committee, right? And everybody is terrified to go against the committee because, that will lead to either your excommunication or your death, like literally your death. So they don't, they even if they can do something, they're terrified to do it, right? So we have a number of cults. I mean, it's just like the ancient world. They're, they're, but even like cult mentality, you know, even through the age of like where people thought like the West was under a Christian theocracy, which it really wasn't. But let's just 
for the argument say it was, you always had sex, you know, you had like all the various denominations and then groups like Opus Dei and the Jesuits, right? And um, and then you had groups like uh, the Sabbateans and the Frankists and Judaism, and you had groups like the Freemasons and uh, the Rosicrucians, in the Protestant states and everything like that. So there's always, there's always been cults. There's always been sex because it's just human nature. It's just human nature. It's just the way it's always been. And you, you know, you're a lot younger than me. I mean, you're younger than my middle son. (laughs) So it's just like, you probably don't remember like civic religion. You know, when you went to school and you you like you learned about the pilgrims and George Washington chopping down the cherry tree and this whole idea of like the civic mythology and the civic religion that doesn't exist anymore. Right. And it's certainly, you know, I'm not trying to defend it, but it, it did give people some sort of unifying principle that's gone. Everything now. I mean, not only are you know, we've even gone past identity politics. We're at just total atomization right now where everybody is just looking to the mirror of their social media, their Instagram, their TikTok, their Twitter. You know what I mean? They don't care about anything else outside of them staring at their own reflection through social media. You know, that's the real black mirror. You know what I mean? But the ironic thing is, is that if you start to break it down, you're like, oh, shit. Well, that is kind of like John D. with his scrying stones, isn't it? Isn't it, right? It's like John D. was looking into these, you know, he and Edward Kelly were looking into these, uh, black polished obsidian mirrors and, uh, you know, but basically, they were, you know, they thought they saw like these hosts of angels, but really what they just saw was their, their inner spirits, like their inner demons or whatever, you know what I mean? Because it becomes completely solipsistic, you know, and solipsism is endemic right now. So, it is going to break down. It's going to break down, you know, certainly within my lifetime and, and certainly within yours. It's going to, it's going to break down and we're all, we're all going to have to think about how we're going to recover from it. What, you know, how, when we have to crawl from the wreckage. Yeah. They are going to try and do all this new world order bullshit, even though the new, the, the new world that they're trying to order is shrinking every day. Right. It's basically, the Anglosphere in Europe, pretty much right now, Japan. Um, you know, they are going to try to do all these things with smart cities and digital currency and all this kind of bullshit. But you know what? It's they don't understand that it's just slow suicide. You cannot build the kind of civilization that you built on like free enterprise and and. The, the concept, at least, of, of free will under slavery. You, know, you can't do it. Slaves can't think independently. Slaves can't make decisions. And in the technological world that we're living in, that's what's required. You know what I mean? Right. So... But the interesting thing about it, like I said, is that it's all ultimately cultic. It all boils down to a cultic mentality. Well, and- I mean, the New World Order itself, where does it come from? It comes from, you know, uh, what was it? Francis Bacon and the New Atlantis, right? right. I mean, it comes from Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry. You know, it, it comes from cultic thinking. 
Right. Well, I mean, and even it, people like Wells, you know. The, the point you made about solipsism, it's interesting because as I wade deeper into synchromysticism, I fear uh, I might be running the risk of solipsistic thinking in some cases, or at least I see other people start to think mm -hmm. that way. And as someone who you know knows this area really well, you know, I wonder what your advice to people is because I think that oh, is the cultic. Well, I think it's the cultic mindset influencing people to kind of pull them back because the synchromysticism is pulling them towards their own self-discovery and awakening, and this cultic mindset sort of pulls you back by making you, I don't know, your ego get involved. That's what it seems like to me. But what, what's your advice? I'd love to hear it. Well, so synchronicity is, is a force, right? It's a force of nature. And what it's going to do is that it's going to bounce back at you a lot. Okay. And believe me, you want to just sort of let it go. You know, it's almost kind of like, um, you know, you're doing a really good job, right? Um, and people go, hey, Mark, great job. And you go, thank you. Thank you. And then you just continue doing what you're doing. You don't sit there and go, wow, everybody's saying I'm doing a great job. I must be Jesus. <laughs> you know, I must be like the reincarnation of the Messiah. Right. No, just go, thanks. Hey, I appreciate that. And, and carry on. So when synchronicity kind of winks back at you, you just say, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And just keep on doing what you're doing. You know, a great experience. Great example. And this is like, this is even beyond synchronicity. So, you know, you're asking about Elizabeth and, and the Cocteau Twins and everything. And I have this concept I call the shimmer, where re reality is being reorganized. And, you know, some people kind of fold like things like the Mandela effect into it. Right? Um, but I think that's, that's re uh, a reality. You know, like uh, the sh what I, I call it the shimmer because it's I don't know if you've seen the film Annihilation, but but so not so long ago, maybe just a couple years ago. So I was listening to a Cocteau Twins record. And all of a sudden she sings Chris Knowles. And I'm like, what the fuck? Wait, what? And, and I'm like. I've been listening to this song for 20 years. I never noticed that before. Where the fuck did that come from? And if you don't believe me, it's uh, the, the um, BBC, the Peel Session version of, uh, what is it? It's Feather, Feather, the song's called Feather, Feather Ore's Blades. Or Feather Ore Blades. Feather Ore Blades. Um, and then, you know, it's the, the BBC version. And it's like, she goes, Chris Knowles. And, I, and I, I did a little loop of it and I played it for Greg and he just flipped out. And I've lived out too, because I'm just like, how did I never hear that before? Well, it's because of the shimmer, and it's because of synchro you know, synchronicity is, is, a, is a part of the shimmer. And like I said, you know, you can hear this for yourself, you know? And, I mean, it's just go on YouTube or, you know, whatever. And, um, yeah, it, it flipped me out, but it didn't, like, I just kept going. Right, you know, like, oh, that was that was kind of cool. Yeah, I guess. you didn't try to like get. But 
I'm not a dead man. Now, actually, I, I made a loop of it and I put it on SoundCloud and the uh, title of it is that's it. I'm a dead man. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I'll put that. I'll put that but, in the in the outro of the song of the podcast for people yeah. to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you just you just keep going, you know. And a lot of people are kind of new to it. Like they just go, oh, you know, this is pointing at me and pointing at me. And it's like, yeah, well, it does that. It, basically, what it's saying is like, I see you. It's acknowledging that you're there you know don't get carried away you're not jesus you know you're not the um the messiah you're not the um star child it's just the sync it's just synchronicity just acknowledging you it's a synchronicity is acknowledging that you're looking into it you know that you're sort of going through its laundry mm. it's, it's just like you know i think you know they like the sync book people they call it sync winks it's just like, it's kind of winking at you. It's like, hey, I see you. Right. Yeah. But the freaky thing is, like I said, when it's reorganizing what you thought was reality. Like I said, I listened to that song for 20 years. Believe me, I would have noticed my name being sung by Elizabeth Frazier. Right. I would have noticed. I would have noticed that. But, you know, if there's one thing that I would have noticed in this reality or the old reality, it's that. And but it's just you know it's the shimmer, um, you know. I, in in our little uh, deep dive group, you know, talk about the shimmer a lot because it, it's is an interesting phenomenon. We'll, we'll just have like this kind of thought. We'll just make this kind of supposition, and then it will just materialize. Mm. You know, like and I'm just talking like you notice something and and you just see, you start to see it everywhere. I'm talking like very specific things oh yeah manifesting that were not there before this podcast is an and, example uh, of that for sure i mean i don't know if i've told you my story but i started as a, a delivery driver listening to podcasts eight hours a day and now i work for sam tripoli i mean the synchronicity there of just being an audience member listening to him and then having an odd chance to go on his show and and now I'm here, you know. <laughs> that's that's see, you made the right decision. That's right. that's the health. You made the healthy, balanced decision. You didn't think I'm going to start a cult. I'm going to be like Teal Swan or something and start a cult around myself. Oh God, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. You just, just like that's that's good. That's that's that shows like you know you have like precocious wisdom. Thank you. you know? I, that's. It's highly admirable and, and, and unusual. It's unusual in this age of, you know, narcissistic solipsism, you know, particularly for people who grew up with the internet and social media and cell phones. Mm. You know, it just naturally leads to that. Well, and I would argue that I was just old enough to experience the internet when there was still a level of randomness and freedom to navigate with. Like, I remember a website that I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, uh, StumbleUpon, 
And what was so great about Stumble Upon, you might be familiar with it, but you would that, yeah. Yeah, you put a genre, conspiracy theory was a genre, and then you'd click random and it would take you through every single conspiracy website on the internet at random at the click of a button, just a different one each time. And and that's where I sort of learned some sense from seeing all these, you know, disparate opinions and seeing what was extreme and what was benign and, and everything in between. But yeah, no, I, I understand completely. And I, I fear the worst for my younger family members because, you know, a lot of them are just totally not, you know, eight, nine hours a day, eyes to the screen, video games or, or whatever it is, you know, and it's, it's, it's not healthy. Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I've just noticed in the past, I mean, just recently, I mean, it's certainly something that's not new, but it's, it seems to have accelerated that I, I find that the internet just seems to be shrinking. You know, for, just go on any search engine, not just Google. I mean, Google is a shadow of its former self, a shadow of its former self. But information is just vanishing. Things are just being taken down constantly. You know, I mean, and if it isn't being taken down, you're not allowed to access it anymore. It's just becoming harder and harder. It's just the control the cultic control has just gotten unimaginably worse. Right. Unimaginably worse. Um, and, you know, you have all these, like, groups like the Atlantic Council, which is just basically, you know, this is like our new ruling junta. It's like the new ruling Soviet committee, you know, um, just deciding what everybody can consume and not consume as far as information. You know, uh, things are just labeled disinformation if they go against. I, it's really becoming increasingly Orwellian. You know, it, it's always been there, but I noticed that it's just it's reaching a new crescendo, mm. a new crescendo of just. You know, it just feels like it's shutting, like somebody's shutting down the internet. Wow. You know, sites are vanishing. Information is vanishing. Um, things are being pulled off of, like, you know, sites like um, YouTube and Archive and, uh, you know, you name it. Right. Um, social media is just tagging everything that doesn't just completely lick the bunghole of the power structure with disinformation tags. Mm. It's it's frightening. It's, it is frightening. Um and we're going to need to learn how to, you know, operate within that. Well, and, and uh, you know, this might sound a bit self-motivated, but it's, it, it makes, like, doing my work, synchronistic work, more difficult. Because I just remember, like, I thought Google was the greatest thing that ever existed, like, 20 years ago. 20 years ago when they first, you know, really kicked in and, you know, sort of split off from Yahoo and everything. It was, I, I, I just thought I was, I was like a kid in a candy store. Like, I just like I spent all night just searching like one topic or one term and just finding just, but it's also like, there's a generational shift where like younger people today, since they take all this stuff for granted, they're not like people my age. So like Generation X is really the, the gener and we're forgotten now. We don't even exist anymore. We're just completely written out of history. Um, but we were like the generation that like, you know, we liked fish or 
you know, the dead or whatever. And so you would have like every fucking set list of every concert ever on like a GeoCities page. And it was amazing. You know, it was, and, and it would be like, not only like every fucking set list from every show, but like, you know, extensive write-ups. I mean, people like were intoxicated by the freedom of not having to deal with the gatekeepers in the major media. So it was, it was liberating and it, it was just, it was intoxicating. It was absolutely intoxicating. I remember when I first got on the internet 30 years ago, right? I, it, it was even more powerful than like when I was taking shit like fentanyl, you know, it was more powerful than that. It was more orgasmic. I was just, I swear to God, I would sign on 2400 BPS modem onto America online. And I was like, I'd have like an org, you know, paying by the minute for that shit, but it was orgasmic. It was just like, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, talk about dopamine, but it's all being taken away, you know, and, and we all knew that it was coming. We knew it was coming 30 years ago. We're just like, oh, this is just too good to be true. This is the Wild West. This is, this, you know, they can't allow this to go on. Luckily, they allowed it to go on for 30 years, but it looks like we're kind of at the end of that, that cycle now. So it's, it's really incumbent on people to, to start making the effort to reach out and find the others and to network. You know, it's really incumbent on us to, to do that kind of work because we're going to be dealing with so many roadblocks. We already are, you know, shadow banning, um, you know, getting ghosted, um, outright banning, deplatforming. Yeah. So the cults, the cults that run everything, right? The cults that run everything. And it's, it's sort of like a network of cults, right? But they all subscribe to cultic thinking. They really do. That, I'm, you know, that's, I'm not trying to like sound like Alex Jones or something. I'm not trying to, um, you know, I'm not being facetious here. I, I honestly believe that. When you really get down to it, that's what drives them. Because it's just basically two, two things. It's like, I don't want to have to think for myself. I need somebody else to tell me what who I am and how I believe things, right? You know, I, I need to be told what to think and, and what my identity is. And the cults are more than happy, you know, whether it's religious cults or political cults or um, gender cults, educational cults, things like, you know, CRT and everything like that. It's all cultic. It's all cultic. There are all these things that parents are trying to fight against. They don't understand. They don't know what they're up against. They think they're up against, like, um, Marxism. They think they're up against politics. They're not up against politics. They're up against cults. It's cultic thinking. And that's just, like I said, with the whole gender stuff, they don't realize that if you scrape away the surface of that, is that it's, it's goddess worship. You know, it's a very specific kind of goddess worship that goes back thousands of years. They don't understand what they're up against. And that's why I spend all my waking hours doing what I'm doing. And, you know, I spend all my time when I'm awake doing what I do because I don't want to live in that world. 
I don't want to live in the world that they want to, you know, that the cult, the cult mentality people want to live in. I don't want to live in a world where people who are crazy and stupid and just absolutely bug fuck useless want to live in. I just don't want to do it. And they don't realize, you know, the, the whole idea of like, go, you know, get woke, go broke, right? You, you've heard that expression, right? Mm. That doesn't occur to the, the, the woke cultists. It doesn't occur to them. They just, they think that it's, it's, you know, because of, you know, these mythical Nazis that are running around everywhere, uh, you know, undoing them. It's not, it's, they don't realize that it's them, that it's their stupid fucking ideas. I mean, luckily some of these companies are starting to wake up to this stuff and realize that they're committing suicide rapidly. You know, I mean, it's drawn out, but it's, you know, the, the, the rate of suicide is increasing when, all these major media companies have lost half half their value in the past year. Disney, Facebook, Twitter, Netflix, uh, like Warner's. I mean, they, their stock is in the toilet. They all woke themselves to death. They all bought into this cultic mentality, not realizing that what's behind it is very fucked up and weird ancient theological beliefs, you know, at the core of it. And they sucked on that pipe, and right, know, right. They shit, they shit the bed. They sh they shit in their own bed, you know. Um, yeah. No, and, I. And to me, so that's that's my hope, but also my fear. So my fear and my hope are the same. You know, my fear is that all these crazy cults, political, religious whatever, sexual, whatever, are very good at taking things over. They're very effective at taking things over because what they do is that one of them gets in and they start, they get all their other friends in and then they, it's like a parasitical host. You have a parasitical organism that eats the host out from within. And that's what's happened with so many of these, these big corporations, right? But since all their ideas are stupid and crazy, they destroy themselves. They, 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 they're like a virus that destroys the host, right? You know, smart viruses learn to coexist with the host, right? It's like the retroviruses that, that kill you, right? They don't realize that, you know, they, they, they're killing their meal ticket, right? But it's the same exact thing with these cultic groups. And like I said, my fear... And why I do what I do, and to say this again, because I think it's important, is to, to let people know that they're not just up against Marxists. They're not just up against groomers, right? Whatever, whatever you want to call whatever, you know, uh, these race cults like BLM or whatever, then, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the real enemy, you know? That the surface expressions of these cults is not the real enemy. The real enemy is the cultic mentality. And when you really get down to it, the real enemy is the sense of entitlement. It's like the sense of I am better than you. And it's the same thing if I, when I talk about people who believe, you know, people who are deluded into believing that they can traffic in unclean spirits and just it'll be like, you know, winning the lottery. You know, um, they, they can't, <laughs> you know, a lot of times 
you know, it's almost, it's the same kind of thing with a drug. You know, listen, I remember my honeymoon period with all these, these uh, opioids and stuff. And it was wonderful. Uh, it was like having an orgasm for three hours. But then you pay. You know, that's the honeymoon period. But the honeymoon's always, always over. And then you're in hell. You know, and then you're, you're tied to a ball and chain that keeps you in hell for a long time. And to get out of that hell, you have to go through an even worse hell. And that was my life. <laughs> I lived it. Right? I lived it. I, I'm not speaking... Uh, you know, rhetorically here. I lived it. I know what that's like. So I can sort of see that same mentality. I can break that down towards components and just see like other kinds of drugs, ideological kind of drugs or whatever, you know. Um, And it's really just like self-aggrandizement, narcissism, solipsism. These are the things that we need to defeat. And you know, like I said, a, a, a very highly effective way of defeating those things is communion with the spiritual realm. Okay. And, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. That's the way you get past it, you know. And then all of a sudden you don't really care about you, you know. You don't, you don't want to just look in a mirror all day. You realize that you're part of something else. You know, you're a cog in, in a greater machine. So you want to do the best job you can do, and you want to have the best experience in life that you can. But it's not about you in the end of the day. It just isn't. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not about you. It's about you in relationship to the greater ecology. You know, and, and in this case, the greater spiritual ecology. You know what I mean? And my hope, my hope, my hope is, is that people are just going to get so sick of the lies that have fed our, our economy and our degraded culture for so long that they're going to, you know, they're not going to just like, you know, like the boomers were sort of always going from mode to mode and back and forth, you know what I mean? It's like people are going to make a paradigm shift in their lives where they're like, all right, you know what? Trying to, you know, I can't masturbate 24 hours a day. You know, I've got to, I've got to get out there in the world and deal with the way it is and not the way I want it to be. You know? So, um, but cults, like I said, the cultic mentality just does not allow you that luxury. It's always about the, the, the imaginary end game. Yeah. You know? Do you think that this... Wow, we've been going for a long time, dude. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we could wrap up whenever you you feel you need to, but I have a a few more questions I'd like to get to if you have time. Oh, shoot. Okay. Shoot. So when it comes to this cult sort of ramping up their efforts, do you think that desperation is because there's more than one faction maybe behind the scenes that they're up against, or do you think it's a sort of unanimous front? No, I don't think they're unanimous at all. I think the only thing they hate more than each other is us. Right. So, you know, cults plural. Right. Cults plural. And then, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I, I just see people are starting to wake up to like, 
you know, the reality of this. And of course, people abuse it. Like people will just, you know, accuse anybody who disagrees with them of, of falling into a cultic mentality. You know, well, True. whatever. You know, it's everything, everything gets abused. Everything is used and abused simultaneously. But people are, are, are starting to wake up. People are starting to realize that um, it's, it's, it's a reality, you know, that people have strange beliefs and act on them. And I think that's really important and encouraging. And that's probably why they're trying to shut down the Internet, so that, that, that concept doesn't spread, right? Well, yeah, it seems like it's, it's done them a disservice more than they thought. You know, they attempted to create some kind of uh, Skynet and they ended up enlightening more people than they wanted to but i came across synchronistically this uh thread that i'm curious if you've come across you know i i searched your blog and i couldn't find much about this particular person there were some articles but just not this story um blogs rather um but keanu reeves you know he seems to be connected to um twin peaks and david lynch through this woman named jennifer syme have you ever heard of her or keanu reeves his relationship with her so keanu yeah. reeves was in a band called dog star for some time yeah i remember that yeah he also acted in his first play in rose valley pennsylvania uh at a very pernicious sort of theater in that area you know uh and the first play he ever acted in was called damn yankees which is sort of a faustian bargain type of themed yep. play um but either way Red Sox and the braves uh, oh no the yankees and the braves yeah yeah but it, you know th that aside um this woman jennifer symes seems to be some kind of sacrificial killing uh you know she died Ooh. right around the time of the matrix coming out uh she crashed her car on coanga boulevard after going to a party at Marilyn Manson's house. And after she returned home, she decided that she wanted to go back to the party at six in the morning. And that's when she crashed her vehicle uh, on Coanga Boulevard. But she was dating Keanu Reeves. They had a stillborn uh, birth eight months into her pregnancy, uh, right around Christmas. It was actually Christmas Eve in 1998. Matrix came came out in 1999. So I know, you know, you deal with a lot of stuff similar to this. So I was just curious, you know, maybe I could give you a lead to, to dig further or, or maybe you have some thoughts on what I found. Yeah, I, I, I would look into it. Um, my only um, disclaimer here would be is that some, sometimes people just have shit luck. Some, you know, bad things sometimes happen to good people. You right. know, I, I think that... Um, I don't want to get into, you know, maybe like a blame the victim kind of mentality. I don't know. I It's all new to me, so I'm just kind of spitballing here. But, yeah, um, no, I, I understand. Well, one I, interesting I, thing. I've never, got, I've never gotten like a, I've never gotten like a negative vibe off of Keanu Reeves. Okay. He well, and that's like a pretty chill guy, you know? Yeah. And that's but why, that could be that's why I kind of thought of this and to bring this up is because I, I'm curious, you know, how often the cultic groups like the siren cult, uh, absorb sort of creative people take advantage of the fact that they have access to this otherworldly realm and then dispose of them when maybe they know too much. And it seems like maybe Keanu Reeves was slighted, uh, 
by, you know, this woman being manipulated who he was obviously close with enough to have a, a child with or attempt to have a child with. But she's interesting because she worked with David Lynch. She uh, when she was 17, she started working for David Lynch. She's a young age uh, to be, you know, the muse, as David Lynch called her uh, for the movie The Lost Highway. She helped inspire a lot of the music. The sirens in that movie. Yeah. So actually the Elizabeth version of that is in the movie. Yeah. So that's knew that. that. Well, no, I and haven't heard Getty, you say that. Our Getty, like the Getty family as a whole. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the Getty family because a, I think that they actually own California mm. and B they're, they're so mixed up with occultism and so on. So if you look at all the crazy shit that's going on in California, particularly stuff that just seems like so weird and cultic, just realize that it's, it's highly likely that the people who really run that state are the Gettys. So, you know, for instance, Ivy Getty was just married and, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi officiated at the wedding. You know, I mean, that's, those are people with pull. You know, they yeah. don't talk about them. Right. But, you know, to me, the, you, you kind of, to me, it's like you're bearing the lead here because it's like, when I hear Marilyn Manson, when I hear that name, I'm just like, well, he skies the after, skies the limit with that guy. After she that died, is, he's evil. Yeah. He's oh, like, yeah. After she died, he made a painting uh, in her honor, and it's just just this weird, creepy thing. There's rumors he used blood in the paint, and it's just really disgusting. But yeah. Yeah, I, I would, I would, yeah, I would look at him first always. Whenever there's any, when anything bad happens that he's involved in, he's my go-to guy. Right. You know, he's like my usual suspect. Right. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like always, we, there's so much bad shit that's connected to him that at some point you just have to say, well, okay, so he's the common denominator. Maybe he's causing it. Right. <laughs> or well, he's he, causing it through whatever kind of spirits he's trafficking. And he has that androgynous like blending, you know, Marilyn Manson, you know, Marilyn Monroe, right? This sort of like energy. Oh, What's that? Yeah, my favorite, my favorite uh, Marilyn Monroe band member was um, the name was uh, Madonna Wayne Gacy. I just <laughs> laughed my ass up when I heard that one. Um, well, but there's yeah, this androgynous not... vibe too to him, which is kind of harkening back to what we're talking about with the cult of the siren and gender fluidity. Yeah, but you know, it's to me, it's almost something else with him. Like, I, I mean, I do think that those elements there, but it's just like um, Satanism is so prevalent. Like say like stupid like to me Satanism is just like it's almost like saying I'm mentally retarded to say you're Satan. It's just you, you're just saying that you right. are like like the um the bottom drawer of <laughs> the spiritual world. You, know, right. like you are just like the dollar store, uh, the dollar store um, GI Joe knockoff of <laughs> toy. Yeah, you just you're just a loser. You're just an idiot. So, but it's really prevalent, you mm. know, it's, it really is. And, um, I think a lot of it's just like, you know, all these young people who show up and, and realize that, you know, the, 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 the entire city isn't falling at the feet, you know, particularly nowadays, you know, I mean, the, the business has changed so much and, you know, they expect you to, to, um, yeah, I, it's being exposed. It's being, so I like evil has always been there. But, you know, it just gets worse 
you know, it's kind of like you, you start to notice all the, the, the cockroaches when the, the, the plaster is falling off the walls. And that's that's kind of basically what's going on in Hollywood. It's, it's always been fucked up. There's always been cults since day one. Day one. Like, Alistair Crowley, um, his only source of income for the, for the last several years of his life were, were tribute from the Agape OTO Lodge that, that Parsons was running with Jane Wolfe. So, um, you know, it's, it's just always been there. It always has been there. It always will be there. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, so I was talking about, I did a few posts on this whole Anne Hage thing because that just freaked me out. Um, but uh, then there was this story that this woman, they said that she, um, they found this woman hanging from the tree and she was on fire. Right. So, and then the cops naturally said it was suicide because that's what people do, particularly women, you know, women who are, are well known for not resorting to violent forms of suicide for the most part, predominantly. But like, so this woman was hanging from the tree and was on fire and it was suicide. So I was just thinking, did she hang herself and then set herself on fire or did she set herself on fire and then hang herself? Like, how, how did that work? Like, what are the, and why, why did the cops declare it suicide hours after it happened? Hours. It was like, the, the, you know, so any kind of death like that is, is classified as a homicide, whether, you know, they think it's a suicide or not. So it's like they closed the suicide, uh, homicide case in less than a day. There's something really, really, really fucked up going on in Southern California. And I would hope that any, any of your listeners who are sort of on the periphery of that world, maybe start to think about finding somewhere else to live. Because like I said, I mean, I think that California is run by the Gettys. And the Gettys were the, like, that was the family that, that bankrolled Kenneth Anger and Lucifer Rising. And uh, we're also involved with Parsons and Marjorie Cameron. So it's that whole nexus of OTO and O&I, you know, <laughs> the OTO, you know, the OTO and the Office of Naval Intelligence that, you know, Parsons and Cameron came, uh, uh, Hubbard and Cameron came from. Yeah. I, I just, it just eventually, you know, like those, that kind of cultic activity and, and mentality can do okay. It can kind of sort of fly under the radar when the rest of the, the surrounding society is relatively healthy, but it's not. Southern California is not healthy. And all you have to do is just go there to see how unhealthy it is, to see how sick it is, how sick that, that city is becoming. And I used to love LA. You know what I mean? I, I, I did. I, I thought it was great. I, I, you know, I loved going to like Venice Beach and everything like that. And, um, you know, and I start to say this, this stuff and people think I'm being like racist against Hispanics. It's like, no, the Hispanics are the normal people. Hispanics, the, the Mexicans, I mean, they're like the, the normal people. It's all these fucked up actors and writers and, and, and all this other kind of shit. But, and, and then all the rest of it, like all the, the business stuff. So anyway, get out. Get out. 
because it's it's going in the wrong direction fast. So anyway, your next question. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I want to send. I should have sent you that before this conversation, but uh, I sent it to you just now. And uh, no, I'm a I'm a member of your Patreon. So if you touch on it in a future video, I'd be really stoked to see what you find. And I gave you like eight or nine slides of info that I put together, and I trust that you will. Uh, you'll take that and run with it. But people who are curious, uh, I've done an episode about it on my Patreon, uh, just sort of covering what's in that slide and, and telling people how I came across this information, why it hit me synchronistically. And, and yeah, I, I, there's so much that you offer in your Secret Sun Institute on Patreon. So I just want to thank you for joining me here for this brilliant discussion. And all of the information you shared. It's its always a pleasure talking to you, Chris, and I appreciate you joining me. Oh, absolutely, Mark. Oh, I always have a great time on your show. you have any more questions for me? I thought you had a little more. Well, you have any I, more questions? Yeah, I could I could hit you with some more questions. So you, you recently posted... Oh, we're just making it even three hours. So. <laughs> we could do that. Thank you. Yeah, so you, you recently had a, a blog post about the Commonwealth Games, which, you know, most Americans probably didn't even hear about this. But what was so striking is there's this gigantic bull and it looks like it's made like steampunk style, right? With all these gears and levers on it, it just looks ridiculous. But, you know, there was clearly a lot of symbolism in that and you posted about it recently. So I'm sure that's on your mind. Any thoughts on that and like the the sort of uh, parallel with Beyonce and, and what she's been up to? Well, you know, it's funny because Beyonce just kind of like came and went, didn't she? Like she put out that album and it just, oh, well, you know, she does not have the same cachet that she once had. Uh, I was expecting more from that, but it's just like, it was like people were talking about that album for a week and then it just, they stopped talking about it. But it's interesting that it was kind of timed hmm. with, you know, that Moloch and that's, you know, that bull is Moloch, um, Baal, you know, uh, Baal Haman, uh, no, no, we Baal I always get the two mixed up, but it's, it's, it's basically Moloch, um, you know, cause it was kind of, it looked like it was flaming on the inside, you know? So Moloch was, um, it was one of the balls, one of the lords, right? And it was a god, I believe the Carthaginians and the Phoenicians and everything would sacrifice babies to. And it was just basically like a big steel oven shaped like a bull that, you know, people would put their babies into. And, and they thought that they would get, like, blessings from the god and everything. So, um, yeah, that was just sick and weird. Um but, you know, the, the Olympics and Super Bowls and all these kind of mass events have been used for, for these rituals for at least 20 years now. Mm. You know, they've used like halftime shows and opening and closing ceremonies for, you know, things like the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics and so on as, um, you know, venues for uh, cultic ritual, you know, mass cultic ritual. Um, you know, the problem is, is they're just getting a little too blatant about it. And I think with the Commonwealth Games, with that giant Moloch just running around, um, and then, they, you know, they had all the people going like this and stuff. Um, it just, it's like, everybody was just like, 
wait a second. Yeah. I mean, even like the most normie normies were just like, are you, what, what do we, what are they, what the fuck is going on here? Like, right. What are we looking at? Like, why are they doing this? You know? So, um, so I've got my next is kind of bothering me today. Um, yeah. So, you know, I kind of talk about, I've talked about that for a while. I've kind of talked about these mass rituals and actually in the early days of the blog, I would like live blog things like the Super Bowl halftime and the Academy Awards. And then I just got sick of it. Um, Cause I just like, a, it's stupid, and and B, I just didn't feel like being the um, the signal booster for their sick, uh, magical workings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is an element of that. Now I, I just I just try to laugh at it. I laugh at it now, and well, it did get really stupid. You know, it's like a lot of these kind of things, like Jay Z and so on. And that's why it's so interesting with Beyonce because she came along, and it's like it seems like she was kind of trapped in a time warp you know it's like she was trying she thought it was still like 2014 and you know she was still you know the bell of the ball and she could still just put all this in imagery and everything out there but i think the culture has moved past it you know um people are gonna look back on the obama years as like just not only very weird but also just like you know almost like a period of inversion, you know, um, and I'll just, you know, just leave it at that. Would it, would it be like the alchemical, like the Negredo phase of the alchemical, like the sort of blackening for, for running the risk of a crude comparison? No, I think it's that. I think, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's like, You know, the, the face, you know, the empire had a problem with George Bush, you know, because people were kind of like moving past it, you know. Right. And, you know, pl- plus, like I said, the whole, it, so that was like the neon cults and the neocon cults and the skull and bones types. You know, there was a whole host of different cults running that operation. And they just fucked everything up in, in Iraq and Afghanistan that they needed to, to put a like new window dressing and basically Obama was just new window dressing, but he, the new window dressing gave the, the empire kind of the, the empire gave itself permission to be even more fucked up and evil. And that's why, you know, Syria and Libya and Yemen, you know, it's just like the wars just metastasized. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they fucked everything up then, too. I mean, it's... The world has changed, you know. Um, technology is, is an equalizer in a lot of ways. And you just can't run around stomping on the world's head the way you used to, you know. I mean, even, like I said, it's 20 years ago. You know, after 9-11, the, the neocons thought they could just crush the entire world basically or the you know all the all the brown countries basically and they did a terrible terrible job at it because like i said it's a cult and cults are incompetent mm. you know they just they just can't do they can't find their ass with two hands at the end of the day right well i love that we went to this area because um Skull and Bones is a particular fascination of mine living in Connecticut i was actually in mm-hmm. 
I was in George H.W. Bush's former home the day he passed away. I looked down in the newspaper. I was delivering pastries at this uh, Yale building when I was a delivery guy. And I looked down at the morning newspaper and it says, George H.W. Bush, former resident of 88 Hill House Avenue. And that's the exact spot I was sitting on. Like, you know, it's not a Hill House, Hell House Avenue. Right. Hell House Avenue. Right. Well, and yeah. that stuff is everywhere in New Haven. I mean, you, you talked about the necropolis earlier and the first uh, American cemetery, as we know, cemeteries with laid out plots and roads in between was built in New Haven, Connecticut, and it was called the Garden of the Dead. And, uh, the, the center area of town where where they you know do a lot of local events and concerts and whatnot has over six thousand uh, dead bodies buried underneath it because it it was the original burying plot when the town of New Haven was first formed. So for the first two hundred or so years of their history, they're just burying everybody in, behind the churches in the center green which now homeless people sleep there and yeah. you know but uh yeah. yeah it's very interesting i i wonder you know myself if these sort of uh, skull and bones cults have kind of lost favor you know this whatever particular faction they're a part of or if it's just you know like okay we're, we're our role is finished you take over now because you know i had recent go ahead well if you look at the if you look at the history of those cults, when they do lose favor, they just change the name right, and right. Just carry on as before. So. They change the set dressing and Skull put on and the bones, same show. Skull and Bones itself. So Skull and Bones, what's that? I said it's like they changed the I'm set. Sorry. They changed the set dressing, but put on the same, you know, same actors, and the, you know, they just change costumes and put on a different, you know, show. <laughs> yeah, well, Skull and Bones started because so what? What had happened is that in the early 19th century, you had the anti-Masonic party come up because after the revolution, you know, the Masonic cults just basically took control of everything, everything, you know? And um, so you had a resistance, you had pushback against that. So the anti-Masonic party became popular. <clears throat> there was what was called the Morgan affair. And there was a, a former Mason who was, who wrote a book sort of exposing their secrets and everything. And he just disappeared. And then, you know, turned, you know, the, the assumption was that he'd been killed for spilling the secrets and that sort of fueled the rise of this party. So what you happened, what you had happened is that a lot of these Masonic cults, um, reinvented themselves as, uh, fraternities and senior societies. So like, you know, the Masonic cult that was basically running Yale just called itself Skull and Bones. You know, and then right. you had Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head and, and a bunch of a bunch of other ones. You know, right. I mean, all these big Ivy League schools have these senior societies, and they're just, they're just basically lodges. Right. Yeah. And uh, but it, but even things like Phi Beta Kappa and Knights of Pythias and well, it does feel Rotary. It does feel like they have some occult practices going on. I mean, when you hear about all the skulls they have in the tomb, you know, it seems like what you were describing earlier about sort of like proto-Christian beliefs at the catacombs and sort of going there. And, and now people are so superstitious about that kind of thing. But in the past, they would be, you know, more apt well, they to were connect. Back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they wanted to connect with their ancestors. Now it feels like people just sort of, you know, imagine their ancestors and that's it. They don't actually go and 
make a you know make any attempt to connect outside of maybe leaving flowers on a grave yeah well that will change yeah like i said we're just we've been in this kind of dream we've been in dream worlds for you know not that long you know maybe past century a century and a half and um you know we tried some other things you know, we had all these big breakthroughs with machines and, and medicine and tech. You know, we thought we we had so many breakthroughs in such a short time that we assumed that that's just the way it was. And it's almost like, you know, when you're a kid and you graduate high school. And then, you know, you go to college and stuff. And then you get out into the real world and it's just like, well, where, where are my milestones? You know, why, why aren't I making these leaps and bounds that, that I made? Because the time for that was over. You know, you graduated, you, you left school and you entered the real world. And it always seems to me that the same thing is happening. But, you know, I woke up, I woke up to the lie of, you know, perpetual technological innovation, you know, quite a long time ago now. I mean, back like the mid, you know, maybe around 2014, 2015. I just, I, I bought so heavily into the whole science fiction, technological, perpetual innovation lie that it was very hard to overcome. It was very hard to get past. But, um, you know, the, the experience of age is that I just started seeing the same promises being um, recycled robots and AI and moon bases and well, it seems like the only the same lies that I, I was reading back in the seventies. Yeah. You know, I just, we recycled in the eighties and they were recycled in the nineties and then, you know, and just on and on and on. It's just this carrot that can never be caught. You well, know, it's carrot on a stick. Could it be that the, the they haven't succeeded at making robots, but they've succeeded at making us into robots, so to speak, with our sort of dependency on technology now. Uh, I, w I would use the term zombie. Right, right. You know, robot, you know. Yeah. Robot would sort of, would, would imply that we've made like some sort of technological leap that we haven't. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I think in every objective indicator we're going backwards right people are becoming i mean people are even becoming smaller mm. and and this is this is something that's been you know people are becoming just shorter yeah <laughs> shrinking. yeah what's that they're 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 shorter people are the average height has shrunk over the past hundred years and you know iq is going to go down wow i mean i i'm a i'm a person you know i think you know people can I think people have the capacity, <clears throat> you know, with IQ, you can increase your IQ through, through challenging, you know, your mental processes. I don't think IQ is fixed. You know what I mean? I don't think like, okay, um, somebody was had like a 96 IQ and then they're just stuck with it. You know, I mean, that's just right. like, that's the scarlet letter for the rest of their lives. You know, people can increase their IQ. I mean, a, a great example is that, um, you know, the work that I've been doing for so long, re, you know, really required a lot of creative problem solving and, and required a lot of 
things with like spatial perception and stuff like that. So the last time I took an online IQ test, I aced it. I, I, I just aced it. Like, so I don't even know what the IQ would be because I got every answer right. You know, and I, I, it doesn't affect the conduct of my life. Like, I don't run around bragging about my IQ because I didn't even, like, wait long enough to see what the score was, you know. I just knew that I got every answer right. And the reason being is that I trained my brain through the work that I've been doing for so long, you know. And because a lot of the questions that were on the IQ test really spoke to the strengths that I developed specifically through the work that I've been doing. So probably if I had taken it 10 years prior... I, you know, it would have been much, much lower. You know what I mean? So it's like we have the capacity to increase our, our intelligence, but we need to challenge ourselves. It's kind of like everyone has the capacity to increase their muscle mass unless they get some sort of wasting disease. But you've got to do the work. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing intellectually as it is physically. But, you know, we thrive through challenge. You have to challenge yourself. You know what I mean? Muscle tissue needs to be broken down before it can grow. You understand what I mean? So it's just like, I see the same thing intellectually and maybe even spiritually, you know? Maybe like, you know, going through hell for 10 years of my life, I, you know, is what I had to do, you know? It's, it's it's what I needed to go through because I had a task, you know, I had a responsibility that I was running away from. Maybe I don't know. It's pure conjecture on my part. I think that's but, a... you know, I could I could sit around and just feel sorry for myself for like losing, you know, the best years, you know, what would have been my prime earning years, right? But I don't even think about that anymore. I just think like. I was, I, I had a lot of stupid thoughts in my head before they were kind of burned away, you know, so there's, there's, you know, that's your negredo, you know I mean? That's your burning away. That's your calcino and all, <laughs> calcinatio, whatever all those terms are. Right, you know? right. Um, you know, so maybe, you know, it's, it's what I had to do. Cause like I said, I mean, I, the joy in my life was being able to reconnect with spiritual reality that that I had lost. So uh, maybe I just had, I had to go through that, you know? I don't know. I, I don't want to read too much into it because I, I did have objective physical problems, you know? I, I wasn't just sitting around popping pills for the kicks. I was trying to deal with a, a, a lifetime physical condition. I don't know if you've noticed, but I st it's kind of bothered me today. You know, it's like I'm kind of like woke up, you know, I was kind of in pain. And right now I'm not feeling too great, but it's like, you know, I deal with it differently now. I don't, I don't try to just numb myself with, uh, with opioids. And it's like, I was on all of them. I was on Dilaudid, uh, oxymorphone, uh, which I guess is Opana, uh, Vicodin, oxycodone, oxycontin, tramadol, uh, fentanyl. I mean, you name it. I hated fentanyl, by the way. It's fucking horrible drug. But um, wow. Well, you know, like I said, it just you know when you try to run from your problems or try to bury them, they don't go away. They don't go away. Yeah. 
Yeah, I knew someone who sadly passed away from opioids, a very close friend of mine's older brother. He was a, a friend of mine as well. And yeah, I mean, Chris, I, I think everything you, you've said in a way, especially, you know, the more vulnerable aspects of what we've talked about uh, are incredibly medicinal in the correct way for, for not just me, but I hope everyone listening, especially people who are dealing with similar issues in their life. You know, me, I... I've always had this sense of, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an addict in the sense that I, I love cannabis enough to where I know my limits. Like, okay, I can't do anything worse than that because I'm already so close to this thing that, you know, I, if, if I fall in love with something else, my life will be over. So, yeah, I, I know my limits and, and hearing that uh, your, your story and, and how you've overcome is very important. You know, I think it's worth talking about and uh, it might feel like conjecture for you or, or self-motivated. I, I don't think so. I think, you know, you're, you're right where you need to be. I think you're sharing a message with people who who need to hear it at wherever they are in their life. And maybe it was the case that you needed to be at that point in your life to overcome and understand what you do now. You know, I, I think we all have our own hero's journey to face but chris i want to let you go i know you're probably wanting to lay down and rest it's been almost three hours so thank you so much let me know uh, what you find with that whole jennifer syme thing because i am curious about that and i'm excited to see that you have a, a new revised version of endless american midnight coming out do you have any other books planned or any projects planned for the patreon yeah i have a lot of things planned uh, but I'm kind of you know, keeping things close to my vest right now. Cool. Well, I know you but, uh, just recently did an awesome live stream on Stanley Kubrick and Roswell, and we didn't get a chance to touch on that. So if folks are curious, they can go sign up for the Secret Sun Institute Patreon, get a load of that. You could also go to Secret Sun on Blogspot, just Google Secret Sun, you'll find it, and check out all the great work Chris has been putting together over the years, years and years of research, and you could even click the the topic siren and find all of the articles chris has put together on this topic that we just almost touched on today you know it's it's a tricky thing because there's so much information it's hard to feel like you you've totally summed it up but i think over the course of all of like you know the blogs compared with like the podcasts and you know what you have on your patreon people are going to if they if they use it right they're going to realize that they're in a much stranger world than they might have at first. So Chris, any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I just, thanks for having me on. Always enjoy it. Had a great time talking to you and uh, let's do it again. Awesome. Do it again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, I agree. And for everyone listening, have a great moment wherever you are in the now. is our episode three-time turning guest 
my friend Chris Knowles, proud to be a friend of his, or at least it feels that way. He's a very nice guy. And wow, I actually just paused the siren deep dive that he only hinted at towards the end. He actually, I don't know if he even mentioned it until we finished recording a full three hours content for our third conversation and the first two conversations are very long uh there's almost nine hours of uh mark and chris knowles talking (laughs) there's that number again uh big shout out to everybody who listened to the nine hour episode 200 this episode is episode 202 big shout out to everybody who checked out our episode with christopher bjerkney's uh no uh, planning there, back-to-back Chris's, but very different uh, perspectives between the two Chris's. And Chris Knowles, like I said, I'm pausing a YouTube live stream that he's doing for patron supporters only, where he's taking us through uh, the Siren Deep Dive, a bunch of new information that he has found concerning the Siren Saga that I feel he's best known for, although he hasn't fully written a a book about that material. He's written several blogs and appeared on many different podcasts. Uh, One of the first times I've ever listened to Chris Knowles was through Greg Carlwood's shout out to the Higher Side Chats, a big inspiration of this podcast. And I will never fail to give Greg a plug because I have that much respect for him. Uh, Shout out to everybody who's a part of Alt Media United. We have some new podcasters that just joined up. AltMediaUnited.com And if you have a need to say something, start your own podcast. Why not? And uh, I could help. I can help give you the 101, help you with the strategy, tools that you might need to succeed at podcasting. So hit me up. There's a link in my Kofi store if you'd like to schedule a half hour, 60 minute or 90 minute conversation. And it doesn't just have to be about podcast stuff. If you're listening to the show, and you like what I have to say and you want some advice or you want to brainstorm or collaborate on, a, on an idea, you can buy Mystic Mark's time. It's called a Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. So check that out if that appeals to you and of course check out all the other ways to support the show in the episode description be sure to support chris knowles on patreon of course and you'll get access to this deep dive Uh, we only just touched on the siren today Uh, he gave up a little bit of information on some of the new stuff that he's looking into but yeah this presentation is deep um i can't say anything i'm sworn to secrecy is the nature of the secret sun institute so come join become an initiate and that's about it for this episode folks thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the moment immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now peace so um, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows you know mark is doing a great job even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes he's great no he's done a great job he's done a great job good job mark you can call uh Mark Palmer, Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's. It's a beautiful day to be alive. 